0: Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT A20. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath.
1: Hello again. It's a beautiful, if cold, Saturday here in the upper Midwest. And I don't know about you, but I am ready to win. Um and not just to beat uh, MAGA, um, not just to win the election, but to put the whole movement aside, just be done with it. And I think we're ready and the country's ready to do that. And furthermore, I think we Americans are serious enough to step up and do our job on the global stage. It's not just that the world needs us. It's in our own interest. And we're going to talk about a lot of this today. Let's start right here at home. Look, there's room in our democracy for conservatives, for progressives, you know, for people with all kinds of political points of view. But there's no room for anyone if the game is rigged and basic fairness is ground under the heavy foot of power. And this, more than anything else, is why MAGA has to be defeated. And you know what else? It's why they will be defeated. The MAGA cult. It's a cult of power and that's no longer even an open question. They prove it at every opportunity. I mean just last week they decided the border problem wasn't a big problem after all and tanked the legislation their own team negotiated, legislation they called the toughest border measure ever. You know, far more important than the border was the cult and Mr. Trump calculated that fixing the border might strengthen the United States, but it wouldn't strengthen the cult. So down it went. They proved it again this week when they disgracefully impeached Secretary um, of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, in order to blame him for the problem on the border that they don't even want to fix. And they impeached him despite lacking any evidence of wrongdoing. Power cults don't bother with things like evidence. The cult leader, of course, Mr. Trump, he had a great day in court, didn't he? Um, His abuses of power are well known. I mean, his first impeachment was for abusing the presidential power to schedule the delivery of military aid in order to shake down uh, Ukraine's President Zelensky for political favors. More recently, his response to being found liable for sexual assault, defamation, business fraud. His response to being indicted for racketeering and insurrection is to say that if he takes power, he will go after those who tried to hold him to account. Power is the only evidence that matters. We've seen Mr. Trump use his power to mock, to belittle, and to betray. We haven't seen him use it for our own good, just to try and aggrandize him and his team a little more. We've seen him use it to wheedle contributions to his criminal defense fund from Americans he has duped into thinking they are somehow trying to protect our democracy. And of course, for MAGA, the cause of power justified Trump's abuses when he did all he could to overturn his epic loss to Joe Biden. Look, in the Senate, Republicans worshipped power over all else when they refused to consider Barack Obama's. Supreme Court nominee, and again, when they rushed the confirmation of a Trump appointee, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, when while votes were being cast in the election that would oust Trump. What did the court do almost as soon as possible after the GOP gained control? What did they do? Well, they threw out precedent and our unbroken tradition of expanding rights by making abortion illegal. Never mind that most Americans think that's appalling. Power cults reward their supporters and punish the rest of us on issues big and small. Republican senators who once sturm, stood firmly for, you know, one proposition now stand firmly against the same proposition just because Mr. Trump told them to. If you doubt that, pay attention to Lindsey Graham on aid to Ukraine. That's what a power cult does. In 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 Texas, Governor Abbott interposed his National Guard between our, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and the border. Texas then asked for and received support from dozens of Republican governors to argue that states should be allowed to set their own foreign policy. Are you kidding? These states now say they will refuse to accept the rule of law and will instead provoke a winner-takes-all crisis. That's what the MAGA legislatures did in Wisconsin and Ohio. The radical gerrymandering in those states means that Republicans retain supermajorities even when Democrats win the most votes in state legislative races. And what does the GOP do with that ill-gotten power? They use it to sell public services to contributors. The scandals in Ohio make my historically corrupt state of Illinois look Pollyannish. Look, unless it's theirs to control, and this is the point, main point, unless it's theirs to control, the MAGA crowd says power is illegitimate. And when it's theirs, they use it to give tax breaks to their corporate donors, to protect polluters, to gut child labor, to privatize public education, to take away rights, voting rights, abortion rights, civil rights, and the the right to read whatever book you choose. They use it to, to... further entrench themselves by limiting the way people can vote. They use it to reward their supporters in the gun and oil lobbies. And across the country, MAGA-controlled governments hide their crimes by enacting limits on the press and the public's right to information about government spending. When one side has to win everything or else, or else is the only option. And this is why they have to be defeated. But you know what? It's also why they will be defeated. There's a common thread in the victories Democrats keep racking up from ousting Trump in 2020 to the midterms, to the off year in special elections. Americans sense the GOP has abandoned even the most basic rules of fair play. They've acted in bad faith and they've turned their backs on common decency. We aren't Russia, despite the clear desire of MAGA leadership to turn us into that kind of I don't know, autocratic kleptocracy. Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader that Putin tortured and killed this week in prison, he's a hero in part because he stood alone against Putin's tyranny. But here in America, we have a different relationship with tyrants and with our government. Millions of us, ordinary citizens that we are, have no patience for would-be strong men. And You know, folks who will tell us what to do and use the force of government to go after those who challenge them. It's precisely because they are a power cult that MAGA can't tell the difference between the legitimate prosecution of their own lawbreakers and the illegitimate persecution of the rest of us. It won't stand. There's an old saying in politics, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. There have been hogs across America. People are waking up to the oinks and grunts of MAGA hogs trying to take everything. Take everything. Be accountable for nothing. Americans see that whenever the GOP gets power, they abuse it. Look, Democrats don't keep winning, and we can't fool ourselves. We don't keep winning because we have better candidates, though we do. We don't win because voters agree with us on questions of policy. You know what? They don't always. Heck, we don't even agree amongst ourselves. We win because people have a sense of fair play. And Americans can tell that that MAGA crowd has gone too far. I'm going to take a break. You can hear my voices. I'm not doing so well. When we come back, um, you're going to hear from uh, Tamar and I'm going to tell you about her. She's in uh, Poland right now, but she's based in Kiev. And we're going to talk about Ukraine, but we're going to talk about uh, the United States as well and our role in the world. You're not going to want to miss it. Stay tuned.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraff on WCPT 820.
1: I'm delighted right now to be joined by Tamar Jacobi. She is um, Kiev-based director of the Progressive Policy Institute's new Ukraine. Crane Project. She's been an author, a journalist. She was a writer and editor at Newsweek when that was really an important thing, um, and the uh, deputy editor of the New York Times op-ed pages. Uh, she wrote Someone Else's House, which is, um, <laughs> you know, a, a struggle about uh, America and how we try and come together and sometimes fail, um, and Displaced, which is Of course, a story about the Ukrainian refugee experience. Welcome and thank you for taking the time.
2: Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Hey, I want to talk to you broadly about Ukraine and what the struggle there means, not just to Ukraine and to Russia, the active participants, but for the whole world for for uh, U.S. and Europe. But before we get into the sort of complicated stuff and the context and the implications, can you catch us up on the news? What's the status of the war as we approach spring?
2: Yeah, so that's not a simple question either. But the war has been, we're we're heading into the third year of the war. It's been going for two years. Uh, As most of the world knows, there was a very, um, a lot of effort and a lot of expectations put into a land based counteroffensive last summer that didn't go too well so after the first year of a lot of progress and a lot you know super, uh, the uh, the world thought that Ukraine would fall after the first three days. It lasted, it's now lasted two years. But the first year there was a lot of progress. Ukraine held off the Russians and won back territory. And then last summer there was a counteroffensive that, that was very advertised and much anticipated and it didn't go too well. Um, that doesn't mean the war is at a stalemate. Um, hundreds of people are fighting and indeed, Uh, dozens dying every day still on the land front where, uh, Russia is still throwing meat, throwing troops at the, at the fight and Ukraine is doing the best it can to hold them off. Um, the, it's going more interestingly and better, the war on the sea where Ukraine doesn't even have a navy, and the, and the, and Russia has a great, big, powerful navy. But Ukraine has managed with drones and little boats filled with explosives and other means to really push back the Russian navy from the Black Sea and carve out a free shipping lane uh, out of Ukraine uh, to the rest of the world that takes. Basically, grain from Ukraine to Africa and the Middle East. Um, Ukraine is an important source of food for those regions. So the war is, you know, not going as well as anyone in Ukraine or 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 the West would like. But it's not stalemated, and um, Russia continues to uh, bombard Ukrainian cities. With missiles and drones, I live in Kiev and every week, every t- five, six, seven days, there's a big, big air alert where, you know, you have to decide, am I going to the basement or am I just going to go into a room with no windows um, and, and people, people, people die. Um, and in other cities, it's much worse. Uh, Kiev is fairly well defended by air defense. So the war, so the war, the war is continues. It's in and it's, you know, stretching into. Looking like now that it won't be a war that will be over soon, it will be at best, you know, another at least a year and maybe more grinding attritional war.
1: The land portion of this sounds like World War I to me, where you have, you know, t- trenches and very, very bloody battles over very, very small uh, gains.
2: With one big difference, Um, both sides can see everything that's happening on the other side using a drone. So the the, the skies are buzzing with drones, and if you so much as stick your head out of the trench, the other side can see it. And Mm. both sides are in that position. Russia has better electronic warfare to jam the, the signals for the, for the Ukrainian drones, one, uh, one of many areas where Ukraine lags behind Russia in manpower and technology, because although the West is helping, it's not helping enough. So it's like World War I, only very different. <laughs> and I've not, I've not been out there, um, that close, you know, where I hear the yeah. drones buzzing yeah. overhead, yeah. but yeah. that's my, I've been, I've been pretty close. I've been within 10 or 15 kilometers and, and, um, that's what you hear.
1: So that's the status of the battlefield. But this this war takes place in the context of a Ukraine that was and and continues, I think, to be in the midst of a transformation. What can you tell us about the progress and the challenges of building a stronger civil society, a more robust democracy and the fight against what I don't know what to call it? I guess I'm going to call it endemic post-Soviet corruption.
2: Yeah, that's, that, that's, that was a very nice way to put all of that. I will talk about that, but I just want to give us one other big contextual thing before I do. The most important front in this war is in Washington.
1: Yeah, I won't well, we'll get to that, I promise.
2: But I just, we need to, we need to say that, right? As, yep. we, as we talk about the state of the fighting and the front lines, the most yep. important front line is in Western capitals. But, but you're right, the question about what's this war really about, it's, yes, you know, Putin sent Vladimir Putin sent soldiers across the border in February 2022. But that's only the Ukraine is fighting for much more than repelling those soldiers. Uh, Ukraine is are Ukrainians are people that have been fighting for a nation for at least a hundred years, and some people might say five hundred years, and not really had an independent modern nation for the last three hundred years. They were under the thumb of first the Russian. Empire and then the Soviet Union. And they were there. It's it's sort of like, um, I mean, I don't know what the metaphor is. Texas doesn't quite do it because Texas is reasonably happy being in the United States. Ukraine has, has, has been unhappy being in the Russian Empire and in the Russian sphere almost that whole time. Didn't get an independent country until 1991 when the Russian... Uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, and suddenly after, you know, a couple hundred years of longing, Ukraine had a nation state, um, I would say it got off to a slow start as a nation state. It was still, as you say, very, very Soviet. Minds, even though it was very different, it's not, you know, Putin's claim that it's the same as Russia. That's not true. They're not even really brothers. But Ukraine was, was, was after 300 years, you have a lot of the Bad old habits of the dominating imperialist country. And so they had a lot of corruption. They didn't have a market economy. They didn't have a real democracy. A lot of people in Ukraine still felt loyal to the old ways, especially if, if the, if independence didn't bring them prosperity right away. They kind of missed the old days when, when, you know, Soviet nanny state took care of them so, so, to some degree. Um, and so for the first 10 years, 15 years of Ukraine's existence it it wasn't, it was still a kind of a you know, it was was struggling to get on its feet. And then in 2014 there was the important revolution of dignity and the the urge for democracy and for freedom and to join the West and to get rid of the corruption really broke through in a fierce way. Nearly a million people protested in the street uh, at the revolution of dignity and they deposed the old pro-Russian president and since then, for the last 10 years, it's, Ukraine's been trying to build the kind of country it wants to be, a modern European country, real democracy, real market economy, get rid of the corruption. But that takes time. That doesn't, after after 300 years of, of domination by a power with very different political culture and, and cultural culture and economy, you don't do that overnight. So Ukraine's been struggling to build that independent nation for, for certainly 10 years and, you know, going back further. And, um, the war is kind of a culmination of that. They do not want to be part of Russia. Um, and they want to build that other better country and you know everyone in Ukraine gets that i mean restaurants say we're not serving the same old russian junk anymore you know every 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 rock star sings you know every people every, hundreds of thousands of people switched their language they were still speaking russian when the when this war started two years ago switched their language to ukrainian You're, you know the pe- baristas and cleaning ladies and taxi drivers talk about the national ideal and about wanting to be part of europe and want to to have European values of democracy and a free market.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, if if you were, go- if from the Russian side, if you were going to say this was all us, and hark back to Kiev and Rus as sort of the people, then you wouldn't have had de demur, this uh, star- starving of millions of Ukrainians um, in the Soviet era, and you would have dealt with a tragedy like that in a very different way. Instead, you you, you planted the seeds of, hey, we're not them. We, we can't Yeah, well, I mean,
2: them. Ukrainians are, are very different. I mean, Russian culture, for whatever reason, I mean, I think, you know, I'm not an expert in this, but, you know, people who, who think about it say that it really <laughs> happened when – sort of Asian invaders controlled Russia for a lot longer than, it, than they controlled Ukraine, you know, mm. a thousand years ago. And mm. Russia became a, was has been an authoritarian society, you know, ever since. And, um, Ukraine has been a country of pioneers, pioneers and, and, and fighters and democrats. The Cossacks, you know, there are a lot of reasons to like and dislike the Cossacks, especially for Jews, but they had a kind of Spartan democracy in a thousand years ago. And Ukrainians, they, they mistrust authority to a person. It's a very different place than Russia. Um, you know, yes, there were some common ancestors to, you know, 1500 years yep. ago. But, but you know, Ukrainians would say Russians didn't learn anything from it, and they, they learned a lot. They learned it all from Genghis Khan. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's ancient history, right? But it is a place yeah. where ancient history kind of matters.
1: Okay. So um, that's really interesting. And they're making progress in this.
2: Oh, they're making you, tremendous it, progress. And I mean, the corruption fight is really one of the most interesting <laughs> ones, because Ukraine is a is a, still a pretty corrupt country, right? Both at the top level, politicians are still, there are plenty of still corrupt politicians. I don't, you know, I'm not pointing the fingers at this president or his administration, but still in many cities, they're corrupt politicians. And at, at, the, at, the, at the petty level, you know, people are used to taking the doctor a bottle of vodka or paying mm-hmm. the doctor in his room instead of paying him at the front desk, you know, paying him a little more. And, um, but... Um, the country was making enormous strides, again, for the past 10 years, where uh, anti-corruption institutions were set up, judges were fired, um, oligarchs were put in their place. And then, ironically, the war really sped that up. Because for a couple of different reasons, the oligarchs really lost a lot of their wealth due to the wartime destruction. Um, people a really new mood has emerged where before the war, a lot of people felt, you know, we're a corrupt country, but it's kind of like the weather. You know, you put up with it, you live with it. Um, that's not true anymore. People do not think their son is dying to defend the same old corrupt mess. Their son is dying for something new. Yeah. And um and then Europe has been very, very shrewd, the European Union in pressing Ukraine to get rid of to, to take the next steps in the anti corruption reform that had begun ten years ago to really push through changes. And there's just a really I you know, I would say they're on a they're on a kind of unstoppable path at this point to really you know, fight back against that corruption. It's not done yet, and again, it'll take a generation before it's all gone. But, um, but they're but they're working on it hard as hell.
1: The carrots of EU membership and NATO membership are pretty strong
2: too. Unbelievably strong. <laughs> I,
1: I don't think most Americans. So now we're going to head towards Washington. Um, I I don't think most Americans know the promises that we we Americans made to Ukraine in 1994 when when we asked them to give up nuclear weapons. And they did. And again, uh, a decade ago, when we pushed for a ceasefire in the proxy war that was already going on in the east in the Donbass. Talk about
2: that. Yeah. So on both of those things, you you captured it. Um, They the the, Ukraine had a lot of. I don't know the number of nuclear weapons or you know how big a stockpile it was, but they had a significant stockpile of nuclear weapons that were left over there because it had once been part of the Soviet Union, and they inherited them with independence and the the West basically said give them up we don't want a nuclear power we don't want you know another nuclear power on the scene and certainly not one you know in there between Russia and and Europe and Ukraine said okay we'll give up our nuclear weapons because America and, and some other European countries said we will guarantee your security and sure enough they gave up their their you know their, their the, the what they could have used to defend themselves against russia and we didn't defend guarantee their security at all um russia invaded and we gave, sent them our old rusty equipment from the garage in the first days of the of the fighting and similarly as you say in 2014 less stunning but still true um that russia the the, the fir- Putin first tried to, or first began to, to try to take back Ukraine in 2014. He, he seized the peninsula of Crimea, and he invaded the eastern part of the country. It's called Donbas, Dun- and. Um, you know, sometimes they, they were regular troops. There were also, as you say, proxy forces. And that fighting ended, and some agreements called the Minsk agreements. And uh, the U.S. and Europe encouraged Ukraine to sign them. And but then Russia flouted them, you know, with with, with without batting an eyelash. And we didn't do anything about it.
1: Yeah. So. Um
2: but there's more at stake here for America than some old promises, right? I mean, I think those promises are, those broken promises are disastrous, but I mean, I think what Americans don't grasp about this, and this is probably your next question, but you know. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> You're reading my mind. Like, remind us why we should care. <laughs> yeah. Putin, Putin as a, as a unprincipled, un- un- unbridled, um, in- aggressive force, has is 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 trampling over a he invaded another country trying to take the land back by force. That that's not supposed to happen in the 21st century, and it's not supposed to happen in the heart of Europe. And it's a and it's Europeans as a, almost to the person now fear that that Putin's idea is the first bite of the apple in in taking more land will be Ukraine. And the second bite will be the Baltic countries that are members of NATO and then Poland, that's a member of NATO. And that if you encourage an autocrat of this kind to do what he wants in the world, he does what he wants. And then he does more of what he wants. And then he does more of what he wants. And then he does more of what he wants. And he, you know, he's not coming to Texas, but if he goes on like this, in Europe, it will encourage other rulers like him in China and North Korea and Iran to take what they want on a whim when they feel like it, just because they can. And eventually it will be disastrous for the US as well. We, we, we thrive in a world of security and order and open sea lanes and Dare I say, democratic principles. And if those become just the border and security are gone and the democratic principles become laughing stock, it will not be good for us, for our economy, or ultimately our safety.
1: Tamar, Americans seemed to understand this not that long ago. I mean, who cares about Kuwait? It's a dust pile, right? But its neighbor, its bigger neighbor, Iraq, invaded it and said, you know what, they're really a province of ours. So sounding awful lot like Putin and the world said, yeah, no. And we didn't try and conquer Iraq, but we shoved them out of Kuwait. Um, in part because we said the world is better off when we don't allow bullies to just eat their neighbors because they can. We, the humanity lived through that long enough. Um, what's happened that's yeah. eroded our understanding of that? And, 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 you know, not in faraway Kuwait, but in Europe.
2: Yeah I mean America when you look at American history we've always had we've always been caught up in a cycle of isolationism and outward outward, paying, paying attention to the world and caring about the world. And, you know, Tom Paine didn't want France to help us win the revolution because he didn't want foreign power involved. And Thomas Jefferson, you know, talked about entangling alliances and, you know, even, it, it, you know, all through... Well, after, he entangled them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, and, you know, <laughs> through the 20th century, there were huge isolationist movements. And then, you know, the other side of the, of the cycle was World War I, where it took us a long time to get involved, but when we did. We went in with force and we and we won it. World War II took us a long time to get involved, but when we finally went in, we went in with force and we won it. And then, you know, the post 9-11 wars... That was another kind of awakening of this, you know, a high side of the cycle. But, you know, a lot of people thought the post 9-11 wars, you know, didn't go so well. And they went on too long and a lot of Americans died and they weren't really sure it was worth it in the end. I mean, Vietnam, you know, another another turn of the cycle we're not even talking about. But but um so the so it goes in cycles, and you know I think the sort of underlying American mindset of a lot of a lot of voters, the elite usually gets it. The elite usually understands we have to be involved in the world, but a lot of, of of voters think it's far away. They're not sure. I mean, I think there's there's fundamental difference, and you notice this in Europe. You know, people in Europe think the world is a dangerous place. They think the world is full of bullies, and they think you have to be careful for the, about those bullies, and they think you have to do something about them. You know, every European you know remembers. Th- the legacy of Hitler and every European knows Russia's right there. Americans think aren't so sure the world is such a dangerous place. I think we think, you know, let's, ha- most people are nice guys and let's have treaties. And, and then we think, well, even if there are some bad guys out there, we're protected by two oceans. And then they think, well, you know, we got a lot of problems at home. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of things feed an American sense that we don't need to care in quite the same way and always have fed it. And I think, it again, it comes and goes in cycles. And, you know, two years ago when the war started in Ukraine, there was a lot of sympathy for Ukrainians. You know, oh, isn't it a great story? You know, Plucky David fighting against back against Goliath. But I don't I'm not so sure how many Americans realized that their self-interest was really at stake. And that's you know, you don't you don't nobody sticks with a dangerous alliance unless they understand that their self-interest is at stake. And, you know, I fault Biden in this. I mean, you know, there's a lot of fault to go around, obviously, Democrats and Republicans, but I'm not sure Biden made the best case over the two years for our self-interest being at stake.
1: Well, m- m- make the case for him right now. What's the best case?
2: Well, I think I just did. I think, you know, we can't allow bull- and you did, we can't allow uh, bullies to take chunks of, of other countries just because they can we, yeah. we need a world where it's where that where again there's security and order and you can do business and dem- and dem- democratic principles you know we don't have to be, be in the business of democracy building to think that democratic principles are good for peace and order and security and if and once that starts to once the bad guys start to realize that the that order is fragile they they all pile on, and pretty soon there quite a few of them are going to be piling out if Putin gets his way.
1: They're all yeah. I, th- I, I think we do have to let Americans understand that the world isn't all like us, and it is a dangerous place, and that there are actors who will behave terribly. But those consequences, I mean, zoom out a little bit. Um, And you see, because of another conflict in the Middle East now, the Red Sea closed to shipping. Mm -hmm. The the consequence for that, for ordinary Americans who don't care about Israel or Palestine, Mm -hmm. who really just like want to go buy a TV, is the price Mm -hmm. of the TV is going to go up because the price of shipping and
2: commerce goes up. But, and eventually it'll get worse than the price, right? Eventually the, the threats will hem in. It's not just going to be the price. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of financial reasons why the war in Ukraine is, is good for America. All the weapons that they're, American weapons that they're using are made in America. Like factories in, in, in Alabama hire more people because they're making missiles to shoot in Ukraine. I mean, there are a lot of sort of uh, mercenary reasons for want of a better word and financial reasons. Let's not put them down. They're important. Why? An orderly world, world is important, but it will get scarier than that. <laughs> when people, I mean, eventually, you know, Hitler did what he did, and then Japan said we can do what we want to do at Pearl Harbor, right? Yeah, well, but I I can't
1: convince anybody that America's in a military threat, and I don't think it is.
2: But I I do think that Europe might be. I agree. And And I think eventually it comes home. I mean, Putin thinks he can do whatever he wants. I mean, I don't know what the what's behind the story this week of the nuclear weapon in space. But if Putin thinks he can do whatever he wants, he'll do whatever he wants. He wants to dominate the world. People like that. They certainly
1: want their sphere. They sort of view the world as, okay. I get it. You guys can have, you know, the Americas mostly. China can have most of Asia. I don't know who they think is gonna have Africa, but we're gonna take most of Europe because that's who
2: we are. FDR right? told Europe, Stalin to do that. FDR said to Stalin, you leave us alone in Latin America and you can have Eastern Europe.
1: Yeah. It's a it's an imperialist view, and that wasn't a happy moment for the planet. Um I I let's turn to Washington. I I um You know, we've just talked about why we should care and that and all of those reasons imply that Americans should still want to play a role in global leadership to preserve this order, this world order based in international law and widely accepted rules. And, you know, one where we advance security and democratic values peacefully um, around the world. And sometimes the military is used to preserve peace as opposed to go to war. But right now, we have one major political party that seems to disagree. They, they think making America great again means turning our back on the world's troubles as if we could. And, um, and saying the way to do that is to, is to support guys like Putin. That actually is helpful to us. I, I can't get my head around that and I wonder what like, what do you think? You're
2: there. Yeah. So I mean I mean, first of all, let's be honest and candid, right? The parties aren't it's not completely black and white, right? So there's some Democrats who don't like the war either, and there's some Republicans who've been very staunch. I mean I agree with you it's it's mostly oppositions coming from Republicans and mostly Democrats are supporting, but let's not let's not get let's not be too simple about it. I think it has a lot to do with um you know, and I'm just talking now, I don't have a lot of evidence for this, but I think it has a lot to do with the reason that Trump appeals to American voters in the first place, which is that, you know, we had decades of globalization and prosperity based on globalization. And a lot of people, in, especially in the in the heartland, felt left out of that. And they got more and more and more alienated from the people who were benefiting And it took the form of many different things, right? I mean, they would, you know, I imagine somebody in Peoria reading The New Yorker and seeing the ads for the, you know, $50,000 cars and, you know, $100,000 watches and, you know, stories about... LGBT people and just saying, that's not me. That's not my America. And it's partly about the money. And it is partly, I think, about the social values. I mean, I think a lot of America accepts um, homosexual lifestyle now, but I'm not sure the T in LGBT has really caught on in the Midwest and or, you know, among Trump voters. And I think people feel deeply alienated. And it's easy for Trump to say fighting foreign wars is part of that. Like those people care about it because they care about something that we don't even understand or care about. I think it's I think at some bottom deep level, it's about that. It's about like we're a different culture. We care about different things. If they care about it, it's suspect. And I don't know what you do about that. That's like an argument I can hardly even address.
1: Yeah, I mean, dividing America that way, saying there's the, there's the us, the the traditional Americans, or the others who have uh, benefited from globalization and don't, and have somehow moved away from us, so we we don't belong in the same country together anymore. But even I, I, I strongly disagree with that, by the way. But even. Even in that view, that doesn't explain why why any of the us is safer in allowing the rest of the world to be um, a place where the only – thing that matters is power and force.
2: I think they don't see the threat. Again, the threat looks far away and you know, you send Tucker Carlson to Moscow and he interviews Putin and Putin says, I want peace and I'm ready to sit down at the table with you. And all I want is to, you know, take down some of those Nazi billboards and I'm a good guy and I can negotiate. And people look at that and say, well, why not? What really is their threat? And I don't think they follow it that closely. And, I think. Um, I mean, there are other, there are other things feed into it too, right? I mean, but immigration—that you know—we haven't said that word, but immigration—it's the same idea. We don't—they've they, bought that immigration is bad for them, and it and it threatens their way of life, and they—it's all a big package. I think. I mean, I don't but, see how else to explain
1: it, honestly. I, well, I, I then it's hard to explain for all of us. I think, and we haven't quite got there yet, because, mm-hmm. like, look, look, consider during the period um before one thousand nine hundred and eighty before the rules were tipped in favor of the very wealthy right um, when when broadly speaking working in America meant you could have a middle class life
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, it didn 't mean that for most black Americans because we didn 't have civil rights and we didn 't have all kinds of things that um, we 've made some improvement on, and yet during the cold war and um Uh, uh, black Americans supported the idea of a United States and a rules-based country. They weren't out saying, no, you know what, we shouldn't spend any money and you shouldn't spend any of our treasure trying to help uh, preserve a democratic world. They were very patriotic about that, volunteered for the army, right? Right. Did all kinds of things. Now we have a chunk of America that has not suffered anything like black Americans did in the run-up to the 1980s um, and oh, in the last 30 years. And they're turning their back on our position in the world. So I don't think the argument that it is yeah. alienation from a majority that works, unless it only works for yeah.
2: well, I mean, you I know, think people that, in Peoria. I think,
1: and I know Peoria pretty well. It's a pretty decent place
2: and very yeah, well, diverse. well, Peoria, I'm not mean to malign Peoria. <laughs> but, and I mean, I like, yeah. I like the Central Amer- middle, middle of America too. I used to spend a lot yeah. of time there. Um, I'm not maligning these people. I'm not saying yeah. um, deplore. Right, I'm saying I, mm-hmm. I can understand their resentment, um, but I think I think you know the national consensus was much stronger back in, in the day, right? Like everybody watched the same news and everybody was brought up with a very different patriotic spirit. And even if you were didn't feel part of it, you still felt. I mean, it was just a very different place. Yeah. and you know, I mean, there were lots of. I mean and you know look at let's look at Reagan right I mean Reagan still I mean it, it was possible to rally the country to to, to an outward looking muscular stance as recently as Reagan um, and but you know already kind of the different culture of sort of more dissent you know, starting in the 60s, right? Blame us baby boomers, right? A different culture sort of of dissent and national fragmenting. And America's not the only country where this is happening. Every country in Europe is having a populist, um you know, populist yeah. splinter. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. for the same kinds of reasons, I would argue. The old, the sort of old orthodoxies don't hold anymore. You know, whatever it was, the church, the school, the nation, the army, whatever, that held people together doesn't work anymore. And, um, and a lot of people feel left out of the progress, and it's, it's very easy. I mean, you can say Trump was a genius to manipulate it, but I think he found something quite ready to be manipulated, buttons ready to be pushed.
1: Yeah. Well, change is upon us, whether people like it or not. Um, the pace of technological change, the pace of societal change, has never been faster, and I think it's only going to accelerate. So it is the responsibility of of everyone who can to help societies manage change in ways that leave fewer and fewer people behind. That is, I think, the challenge for the foreseeable future and maybe forever um, now. I mean, I just in the changes we're talking about are nothing. Genetics possibilities are absolutely astoundingly frightening. Talk about changes in society, right? Um, right. So, so we have to get our arms around that. Um, um, I, I I guess what you're saying is, in moments like this, um, where there is great change, um, we are always at risk of of just wanting a leader to tell us not to worry; he'll fix it. can't fix it, can't stop this change, no matter what they want to do. Um,
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't, that's, I'm not trying, I guess I would go that far. I mean, I don't think, I don't think Trump's popular just because he looks to many like a straw man, strong man, with G at the end. I think he's popular because he speaks to their particular resentments and their particular feelings of alienation. It's not just he's saying, I can stop change. He's saying, you're right to feel left out. And we're going to put you back at the center of things. Um, so it's related. I mean, I think your insight about change yep, is very profound. Yep, yep. but, but I think it's a little bit different variation of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's right. Um, well, Europe must um, be rethinking its role uh for since world war ii the west has been the west right led by the united states and europe has been happy with that um, more or less willing to be part of that alliance with us led by us Um, uh, and they are most like the, the united states and europe are most alike in their views of democracy and society in this big interesting world we live in um, now there's a wedge there now Europe is beginning to say you know what we can't rely on the United States maybe we'll yep. do this on our own yep. um, are yep. you noticing that and, and, of particularly- course. It's,
2: and it's very heartening I mean it, you know is it going to be enough to to say to save Ukrainians you know how many ukrainians will it save I'm not sure but it's I think you know I think we've gone from the era of the we had the Cold War and then we had the post Cold War where everybody thought, Oh, it's all gonna be peace and flowers from now on. And now we're in the post post cold war where Europe is realizing it's not it's not over at all and there's a very scary guy over there to the east in Russia. And Europe is arming, you know, they've been sort of slowly rearming for the past decade. Um, really since Russia seized Crimea. And, you know, that, that gave it a first big boost. And then Trump scolding them gave it a second boost. And now the, this, the invasion of February 2022 has given it a third big boost. And Europe's really starting to rearm in a serious way, spend more on defense. Some countries have doubled their defense spending in the last couple of years. Um, build, talk about building factories together and coordinating defense building, mm-hmm. uh, defense manufacturer, talking about building, sending factories into Ukraine and building factories in Ukraine, arms factories. And I think seeing Ukraine as a long term kind of fortified border, for want of a better word. I mean, Ukrainians are good at fighting, and it's, there's going to be fighting here, I dare say, for many years to come, not just this war, but even when the war is over. Yeah. And um, I think Europe is waking up and taking that responsibility seriously. Um, I think there's a long way to go before they really can do without the U.S. You know, I think they might be able to replace the artillery shells that they need in Ukraine you know relatively sooner rather than later but you know i think I, I, I don't have the numbers exactly but i think you know russia has five thousand nuclear weapons and i think mm-hmm. europe maybe has 500 and you know what the u.s was the made up the difference and that will be a much more serious challenge if trump really does retreat from trump becomes president and retreats from yeah. the world order but i think europe is, is is starting to see that they need to do this and it's it's in it's in every paper every day five stories you know everybody gets it <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean F- Finland never demobilized. They 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 have a long border with with uh Russia and they have not been below 2% in their spending on defense.
2: Since, but they weren't in NATO until But until right, this year. but so they
1: joined NATO that that strengthened NATO, but I think it also strengthened Europe. Yeah,
2: no, um, Europe is very Europe gets the Rip gets it now. I mean, and people, you know, you, I, 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 you, I was in Poland, well, and actually in Poland this week, and I had dinner with some friends, and, you know, they're talking about, well, we're buying our candles and our, and our extra bottles of water for when the invasion comes here. I mean, there's a kind of sense that it's right next door and could happen here pretty soon. I don't think it's going to happen here, you know, certainly, I mean, I hope it doesn't ever happen here. But I mean, I don't think I don't think Putin's invading Europe until he conquers Ukraine. And I don't think that's going to happen soon. But ordinary people are starting to think, hey, it's us and buy the water and the batteries and whatever you buy. And, um, and I think that's happening in countries across Europe. And so ordinary people are getting we need to have we need a different approach. now. If people believe
1: that, then, oh, my gosh, American leaders. Have to make the case every day to the American public why it's in our interest to defend, you know, not to walk away. I mean, I got asked by somebody, would you send your kids to die for Poland if Russia invaded? Mm -hmm. And I said, I would go myself. Because, yeah, yeah. because, because, of my kids, I would go yeah. myself. It well, exactly. The That's safer. what
2: Ukrainians say too, right? I'm doing this. I mean, I, I, I will not forget the sort of you know forty eight year old man I interviewed in a little soldiers' shelter near the front a couple of months ago, who said, you know, we who was dead tired. He'd been fighting for two years, you know, an old middle-aged, an old man, really. middle You know, it coming to the end of middle-aged man. And he um, he said, I'm doing this. We can't give up no matter what. I'm tired. The war looks stalemated. You know, this is a mess, but I can't give up. Um, if I don't win, my kids will have to fight. I mean, that's exactly why Ukrainians are fighting. But I think, you know, I fault – Again, I I, I, there's a lot of blame to go around. Right. Let's 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 agree on that. I'm not just faulting uh, Biden, but I don't think Biden's made enough of a forceful case about Ukraine and, and, and the American interests involved. And I think he should, as you say, it should be he should be out there. He should have made, you know, five great major speeches till now and now that and he should be saying it every day and his people should be saying it every day and you know everybody you know i mean i mean the, the senate debate last week was was i thought very moving i mean i mean and, and Mitt romney of all people stood out to me saying mm-hmm. in the, on the senate floor um this is the most consequential vote any of us will take in our careers as in the u.s senate and he's right <laughs>
1: You so <laughs> might be right. I'm sorry to say, Turner. There's so many issues in the United States right now. For example, our own voting rights, where well, yes, okay, okay. there are is other fit- issues, there are other issues, right. but I mean it a was lot big voting. other issues right now.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. Um, um, so, I mean, I, um, I think I think you're right. I mean, I'm just agreeing, really. Yeah. Leaders, uh, yeah. And, and, and I think, besides making the case why it should matter to us, frankly, I think we should say instead of this as long as it takes motto, which I think is is an invitation to that who can who can sign on to that? Who signs on to anything for as long as it takes? When you get married, you're hardly most people are uncertain about that. Um but I think you know we should we should define a clear goal in Ukraine and I think it should be, you know, the nineteen ninety one borders and we should do what it takes to help them win that as soon as possible. (laughs) You know, the, the the conventional wisdom in Ukraine, and I don't think it's wrong, is that the United States has given Ukraine enough to make sure that Russia doesn't win, but not enough to ma- to enable Ukraine to win. And we have to give them enough to enable them to win. And it should happen sooner rather than later.
1: So my understanding is the reticence has been um, b- because there are two goals. One is uh, – to push out Russia. But the other one, and it was a perhaps equal equal or bigger goal, was to ensure that this war did not expand into Absolutely. Did, Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And I agree with that. Is this. it your sense that we can assure a Ukrainian victory without inviting a much wider war?
2: I think if we don't ensure a Ukrainian victory, we're eventually going to invite a much wider war. I mean, sure, there's nothing certain in life, right? And you start playing with you know, missiles that can destroy airplane carriers, yep. your, your yep. aircraft carriers, you know, anything can happen. But I think I think we have to.
1: Okay. Well, wow, that's all so interesting. Let me change the subject almost entirely in the little time we have left. I worked with the Progressive Policy Institute with Al Fromm and Will Marshall back when Bill Clinton was first running for president. So yeah. tell us about PPI these days and
2: your project in Ukraine. Okay, so PPI is a, um, despite the name Progressive Policy Institute, it's, um, it's, it's slogan is something like pragmatic, pragmatic something, pragmatic, forgive mm-hmm. me, I should know, but, um, they're, they're, they're really. Democratic um, you know, Pragmatic, democratic yeah. centrists, Pragmatic Democrats. Yes. And as you say, Will Marshall, and, you know, others from the beginning, from the early days were, you know, sort of the, thought to be the kind of brain trust uh, around Bill Clinton. We won't say behind Bill Clinton because Bill Clinton had plenty of brains, but the brain trust around Bill Clinton. And um, they uh, have stood by those principles low these many years of um, robust foreign policy, uh, a, a market economy tempered by reasonable Regulation, um, you know, lots of b- better education policies important to them. Um, full disclosure, I'm a centrist Republican. Uh, I was a, a McCain Republican and the, the PPI is, is centrist enough and pragmatic enough that, and Ukraine, they see Ukraine as enough of a, of a bipartisan issue that they were willing to have a, 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 a somebody, a, a kindred spirit, even if I was wearing a different jersey. I mean, there's nobody left in my wing of the party anyway, so they were willing to have me, and I was willing to have them. And um, I run what's called the New Ukraine Project. I'm based in Kiev, and we, um you know, my interest from the beginning. What I said from the beginning, and and you put your uh, finger your, your finger on it when you. Um, opened the, se- the, the show or the segment, um, I, I think winning the war in Ukraine is going to be very difficult and very painful and involve a lot of sacrifice and very hard, but winning the peace is going to be even harder finishing that job of building that democratic country that that Ukrainians want so badly that that open free secure democratic market economy country aligned with Europe that's really hard work uh, after 300 years of something else and i think that's the the really super interesting story how do you build that and so our focus all along is both the war and what's happening here in the war and how people are winning the war but also starting to look ahead to how is ukraine already transforming itself to be ready to emerge as that country that they want to be in. We all want them to be.
1: Yeah, that is absolutely fabulous. And it is
2: not nation
1: building like we attempted to engage in so unsuccessfully in Iraq. It is um, supporting um, a, a, a nation that is desperate to transform itself. It's yep. a fabulous yep. mission, and I envy you that you're there <laughs> and being part of it.
2: Well, it's 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 enviable. I mean, it's it's you know, in some ways, it's miserable here, right? I mean, people are dying, and you take the train, and amputees come on to sleep in your sleeping car, and you meet people who've lost families and you meet people Mm who lost their homes and you last week I visited a bunch of factories near the front line that have been that people's fathers had built from scratch since the 1991 now reduced to matchsticks it's very painful but it's also incredibly life-affirming because these are all people who are are looking beyond their own narrow self-interest to an ideal and they're willing to sacrifice everything for that ideal and it happens to be an ideal one of the ideals that I hold the dearest, democratic government, <laughs> and so it's 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 enviable to be here. And besides, I mean, I, I they have a great sense of humor here, you know, and they they approach it in just the right way. My 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 favorite cafe um, is a place where they sell fancy little pastries, you know, looks like a French pa- Paris bakery, little pastries in shapes and pastries in colors and pastries whatever, mm-hmm. and the pastry that sells out is the chocolate pastry in the shape of an anti-tank hedgehog and it's called the anxiety pastry <laughs> Yeah, <Yep. laughs> and that's what Ukrainians are like and that's you know ha- you have to love it right you just have to love it
1: well th- thank you so much for your time today and to talk about all of this with me
2: I really appreciate it thank you for a thoughtful conversation it's been great
0: you're listening to the big picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820
1: Okay, so we just spent 45 minutes in conversation about Ukraine, talking about what's at stake for America in the conflict, why it's so important to support the effort to push back against Vladimir Putin's worldview, as well as his army. For me, the fight for the rule of law, for a rules-based order, To to fight for democratic values and against corruption is not just a foreign policy imperative. We have to do it at home, too. So today, and for the rest of our time together today, I'm going to pair the discussion we just had about Ukraine with a dive into three states that are a different front line in the same fight, Ohio, Wisconsin, and North Carolina. And please forgive me my throat today. Um, to help, uh, thank goodness, uh, David DeWitt is my first, uh, uh, dive into the States here. He is a student of history for sure and the editor in chief of the Ohio Capital Journal. Um, as a reminder, Ohio Capital Journal is part of States Newsroom, which is a national nonprofit supported by folks like you. So go look them up. Um, you know, people who want to find, fight the spread of lies with real news that, you know, that people don't have to pay for. So they actually say, and David's a familiar voice on the show, uh, in part because he's great, but also in part because Ohio is so important to the whole nation. David, welcome back.
4: Hey,
5: Edwin. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you.
1: Um, we, we did have, I think you just heard before you joined us, uh, someone who talked uh, you know, from Ukraine talked about the determination of the people there to build a nation free of the kind of endemic corruption that ought to, you know, that come from autocratic politics, in their case, inherit, inherited from their Soviet past. Um, and, and they talked about how that fight against corruption was a part, you know, as important to the war effort as tanks and missiles. I'm sort of in awe of the transformative work that's going on in Ukraine. And I think there may actually be a few head, few years ahead of you in Ohio. <laughs> you're, you're fighting for the same thing. You, you published a piece yesterday that began with the words power. Politics, greed, bribery, regulatory capture. It caught my attention, you know, because like, oh, I was just talking about that in another part of the world. The buying and selling of government, robbing people blind. Um, Oh, my gosh. For those who don't live in Ohio, will you tell the story behind those words?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we are three and a half years now into the largest bribery and Corruption scandal in Ohio history. And what's been happening basically is that back in 2019, the DeWine and Houston administration. Uh, took office and they appointed this guy named Sam Randazzo, who is a longtime energy lobbyist to be the head of utility regulation in Ohio. Meanwhile, another guy named Larry householder just become the Ohio speaker of the house. And he had been speaker before. Uh, That ended up in an FBI investigation. He wasn't charged at that time, but it was a scandal. He returned to power in 2019 to become Ohio House Speaker. And that whole first year that they were all in place in office, they were working relentlessly toward this massive energy bailout that was worth $1.3 billion. Most of that $1.3 billion would be going to First Energy to operate its nuclear plants. And then there was also a big portion of the bailout. That was going to prop up two coal, 1950s era coal fired plants.
1: So, this was one of them, by huge, the way, not in Ohio.
5: Yeah, one of them in Indiana, one of those coal plants. Yeah. So, this yeah. was a huge giveaway basically to the energy industry. And it was to make sure that they would never lose any money and that they could just rake ratepayers uh, for more cash if they were ever even close to in danger of losing money on their old operations. And so it was this big bailout, this big billion-dollar energy bailout, this giveaway to the biggest energy corporations in Ohio that was pushed hard by the Dwight administration, by this regulator who's supposed to be overseeing them and by the Ohio House Speaker and all of these Republican lawmakers. Now, fast forward to July of 2020. The Ohio House Speaker is arrested. The former chair of the Ohio Republican Party is arrested. And three other lobbyists are arrested by the FBI in what they reveal to be the biggest bribery scandal in state history. And what... They alleged was happening and then later proved in court as two of the lobbyists rolled over and cooperated, testified. They ended up bringing felony counts against House Holder and the former chairman of the Republican Party. And what they revealed was a $60 million bribery scandal where the energy companies and executives were funneling $60 million worth of political donations this guy, Householder, and his political machine to elect lawmakers that were going to give them this $1.3 billion bailout. So those arrests came down in 2020. Um, It ended up going to trial last year, Householder, and Borges, the former Republican Party chairman, went to trial last year, around this time last year. Householder got sentenced to 20 years in prison. Borges got sentenced to five years in prison. One of the lobbyists who was charged ended up dying by suicide wearing a DeWine for Governor T-shirt. And then the other two lobbyists cooperated, testified against householder. They're awaiting sentencing. Now, also amidst all of that, before the trial, the regulator, Sam Randazzo, the guy who's supposed to be the chief watchdog for consumers in the state of Ohio overseeing utilities, His phone gets raided by the FBI. We know that in the deferred prosecution agreement where First Energy admitted their role in this bribery scandal, they admitted the bribery scandal. They said in that deferred prosecution agreement specifically that they bribed this top chief utility regular $4.3 million. So it was... We've all been kind of waiting because in the court documents, you know, there's Sam Randezzo, his fingerprints are all of this. There's the first energy executives who are giving out these bribes and stuff. Their fingerprints were all over this. But they hadn't been charged for a long time. That changed in December. In December of 2023, Sam Randazzo was hit by the feds with multiple felony counts related to his role of accepting bribes. And then just this month, just this past week, the state attorney general announced charges of his own felony charges against this guy, Randazzo, and then also felony charges against the two first energy executives. But what we've found out this week um, through those additional indictments is these indictments continue to come down is just kind of the depth and breadth of the depravity of this scandal and how long it's been going on. According to the latest indictments, these first energy executives have actually been bribing Sam Randazzo for years. Going all the way back to 2010, what they were doing was paying this guy Randazzo millions of dollars, and he was funneling it through shell corporations and on one hand, he was he was doing the bidding of First Energy lobbyists, while he was also acting as a consultant for industrial users. So these large industrial users of utilities, and he was greasing the skids by giving those industrial users millions of dollars, so that they would not oppose um, various. Uh, complicated utility-like uh, asks that have to go through the PUCO, basically, that allowed them to take more and more millions of dollars from ratepayers. So, in order to get the industrial users on their side to not not oppose rate hikes. This guy Randazzo was allegedly paying off the industrial users while accepting millions of dollars from First Energy, and then in turn getting First Energy to take millions and millions of dollars from Ohioans and get the get all of our utility
6: bills jacked up.
1: And just so and, I'm clear, who yeah, is the um, governor's chief of staff? Okay, so but, right, and is what is a, does she have this
5: to do? It all starts to get related back together this week. Basically, the, wine has, the governor has surrounded himself in various ways, especially at the beginning of his term, with all of these first energy lobbyists and first energy connections. So I'll just kind of briefly go over what we know about the links. The the governor's chief of staff is a person named Laurel Dawson. Her husband was had been a First Energy lobbyist. DeWine's top legislative aide, his legislative affairs director, was a guy named Dan McCarthy, who was running a dark money group called Partners for Progress that was used by First Energy to funnel its political bribes into into the lawmakers' coffers to get them elected to get this bailout. So we have one First Energy lobbyist working, former First Energy lobbyist who would run a dark money group to funnel political bribes, working as the governor's top legislative aide. We have his chief of staff, who is named, um, who, whose husband was another First Energy lobbyist, who was told about the 4.4 4.3 million dollar bribe that Randazzo got from First Energy. And knew about the money that Randazzo was paid by First Energy just as DeWine was selecting Randazzo to be the chief watchdog of First Energy. She didn't tell the governor about it. DeWine was also given a 198 page dossier warning about this regulator and all of his shady connections, extravagant detail to First Energy. DeWine ignored it. He, he, appointed this guy Randazzo as the cheap watchdog anyway. And then we find out from court documents, not only that, right after his election, he and his lieutenant governor, John Husted, sat down with the two First Energy executives for dinner at a fancy club in downtown Columbus and they asked them who would be acceptable to the First Energy company executives to be the main regulator of First Energy. So they have this meeting with the executives. They decide that Randazzo, the guy that they've been bribing for 10 years, is the, is the best guy for the top utility watchdog. They have this dinner. Then there's two executives that very same night, tool across down to German Village, They go to this guy, Randazzo's condo, and they arrange this 4.3. And so the next day he texts them. There's text evidence that they've agreed on a bribe. The governor's on board. The lieutenant governor's on board with naming this guy the regulator. And they're all gearing up to pass this $1.3 billion bailout. So hang hang on.
1: So so, so we've spent 15 minutes. Like you've been so detailed about the the cesspool, right? It is a plot to line donors' pockets with cash from ordinary Ohioans who just want to turn on the lights. And it whether the governor, you know, uh, uh, is is a party to it or a dupe is irrelevant. He's surrounded by it, right? It's all around his team and everybody he brings in it. So so we have this massive corruption. And this isn't the first time Ohio's been through this. You guys, uh, somebody wrote a business plan on a napkin and pillaged the state for a fortune in, in phony charter schools a few years ago. Correct. Same, yeah. same idea, right? So, so Ohio is massively corrupt, and I'm from Illinois, and I'm shocked by how corrupt Ohio has been. And I, and I, and I want to say Governor DeWine is a popular governor. He easily won re-election. This, this huge scandal following this other huge scandal. Will, will the weight of all of this corruption finally stick to the governor?
5: I, um, if not, well, DeWine's at the twilight of his career here, so I don't think he's going to be running for any more elections, but um, it's certainly going to impact his legacy at this point because, as you mentioned, there's been this, I mean, it is... Hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars that regular everyday Ohioans are paying out because of these pay to play corruption schemes. So the one you're referring to with the charter schools, that's the ECOT scandal that cost Ohioans about six hundred million dollars to prop up these bogus. Charter schools that were inflating their attendance numbers yep. and lying to the state. And it was all dreamed up on a Waffle House mat- like napkin, as you mentioned. There's uh, Medicaid contracts where we're giving away millions and millions of dollars to companies that the officials who are supposed to be overseeing them are invested in. We have corruption in the Nursing Home Association. They're they got hit with all these violations during covid that they're giving millions yep. of dollars of campaign donations to lawmakers and lawmakers are giving them hundreds of millions of dollars in public resources. We have on, paid the lenders
1: wait,
7: I, doing the same wait,
1: thing. Wait, stop, stop, cuz we'll we'll drive people crazy. They won't be able to pay attention. We you've made the you've been really we've made the point. Ohio is massively corrupt and it's tied to the politics. Worse, you know, it's like Ukraine, right? Except that in Ukraine they're trying to make it better. Um, So I want to ask this. You pay a lot of attention to to not just to the the, the, uh, flow of money, the corruption in the state, but how the politics works. Can you imagine this corruption would be possible if it weren't for the radical gerrymandering in the state that makes it nearly impossible for voters to hold their representatives accountable?
5: Oh, absolutely not. The the gerrymandering is what facilitates all of this because these lawmakers – Are in districts where they do not have to run for; they've never faced competitive elections. There's a so Ohio is about a fifty-four Republican say fifty, let's say fifty-four percent, fifty-four forty-six around there. Um, Our legislature is controlled. They have Republicans have a sixty-seven seat out of ninety-nine supermajority in the Ohio House. And they have, I think it's a 23 or 24 seat supermajority in the Ohio Senate. So they're vastly uh, overrepresented in the legislature because of gerrymandering. So all these lawmakers—they just waltz into office. I mean, the only thing that matters is the primaries. They never have to face a competitive election. Almost all of our state house elections are pre are predetermined conclusions. Like we know who is going to be elected because the the districts are so gerrymandered. And even though we tried to pass gerrymandering reform, the Republicans on the board ignored that reform, gerrymandered the state anyway in defiance of seven bipartisan ohio supreme court um findings that their maps were unconstitutional yeah. so yeah you're absolutely right gerrymandering is what allowed these lawmakers to do whatever they want and there's very little public
6: accountability
1: so the only way that that we get any help is when the justice department um uh, or state prosecutors but that's tougher um come in and and, and go through a sort of house cleaning. But they did it before with the school uh, corruption, and now it's back again, even bigger, just a few years later with First Energy. So really at root, the, the, the public corruption in Ohio is tied to the structure of the politics and the inability of ordinary citizens who are being pillaged, after all, by this. Um, their tax dollars in the case of the school scandal, their uh, energy bills uh, this time. Um, all that money is coming out of their pockets to line a polit- corrupt political system. Again, this is, a, this is, a, this is the same reason we want to win this fight in Ukraine. We want to change the world. We don't want a world where people who have power can just reach their hands into everybody else's pocket and take stuff. And, you know, I go, I am so glad you're reporting on this in Ohio, but we need to make these connections for people that this is, that this isn't, you know, this is what this fight is about. You know, when these guys have power, they abuse it. And and that has a cost for ordinary people.
5: Oh, yeah. Sorry for Absolutely.
1: I apologize for no.
5: <laughs> no you make a, a hugely important point, and I'm glad that you're connecting these issues because this is a fight about democracy. It's a fight about the rule of law. It's, about yeah. a, it's a fight about government using their position of power to hose the people, to rake us for our cash, to award their campaign buddies. To abuse our system for their own personal enrichment, for power and greed, like we talked about at the beginning, in defiance yep. of the people. While people, while one in five children are going hungry in Ohio, while people don't have enough food, they don't have enough resources, they don't have, we don't have transportation, we can't get to jobs. You know, people are struggling with real issues. And instead of focusing on helping people solving issues, they're looking for ways to line their pockets and subvert our democracy. And you're right. That's what happens. It's sad how much it happens here in Ohio, but it's the same thing that happens in authoritarian regimes around the world where they capture the government and then they enrich themselves. They use their power. To suppress democracy, to suppress the people, to rig the game, and to line their pockets, and it, so, it's very connected. It's all part of the same fight for democracy and the I, rule of law.
1: I want to. I, I don't think I'm going to have the time because if I, I have one thing I want to ask you first, but then if there's time afterwards, I have to ask you about the people you have sent to represent the state in Washington. But um, but one thing I've noticed with the radicalization of the GOP. It's complete capitulation to MAGA. And this notion that they think politics is about how do we enrich ourselves and and we don't focus on what's the public good. There's no glue that holds that together because everybody's out for themselves. And so in Ohio, like in Michigan, the GOP factions are at each other's throat. They're suing each other. What can you tell us about the fight for control of the House? For instance, the Ohio House has a camp house. GOP have a campaign fund. And I think they're suing each other over who gets to control it. What can you tell us about that? And again, do you think this infighting will, just from a political perspective, will it impact fundraising and will it impact field operations in a way that may ultimately help the Democrat chair at Brown in the upcoming Senate election?
5: So as far as the House infighting, basically what happened is that the Republican Ohio House lawmakers in their private caucus decided that this extreme religious zealot named Derek Marin from up in the Toledo area, uh, he should be the next House speaker. But... Uh, this Dude, is that's what they uh, just did
1: in Washington. They gave us an extreme you know, religious zealot and made him Speaker of the U.S. House. That's not yeah, working out so, that's
5: so well. That's what they wanted to do in Ohio. Those Ohio elements in, in our state were... So radical and incompetent, and they were they were really like kind of trying to blow up a lot of what the more institutional Republicans were trying to do and So when it came time to vote for the speaker on the House floor, those more institutional Republicans actually got together with the democratic lawmakers and elected a different speaker, also a Republican though a guy named Jason Stevens from Kitts Hill, and he became Speaker of the House now. That made the extreme right flank just lose their minds. And they have been in a savage fight with the Stevens people for over a year now about everything, but also including... About The campaign money for the Ohio House lawmakers, they're trying to say Stevens can't use it like that's ours and and that's why it's in court now. They're trying to sue to take over that money and they're doing it because it's a proxy war because of all these gerrymandered House districts what's happening is the Senate president is termed out of his term and he wants to go into the house and take over from Stevens and kick him out. And so they're trying to control this money so that they can get their own, they can win the Republican primaries that they need to secure their power next year. Um, And that's why they're fighting about this money. So so will
8: will that
1: fight, will, will the sort of disarray the Republicans are in the infighting coupled with the the now I assume it's harder for them to get you know money from the lobbyists because uh, of this uh, action in the courts that said you know what this bribery scandal we're cut that money's now cut off will this be will this make it easier for Democrats in the upcoming election now, I'm not talking about messaging or anything I'm just talking about money and uh, and organization and field will the with a chaos on the Republican side and the you know, closing the corrupt spigot of cash. Will that help Sherrod Brown?
5: I, I think that Sherrod's got some. I, I Sherrod has a huge fundraising advantage, all of his own. He's got a great operation. He's really well established in Ohio, and he's kind of got his own thing going. Uh, None of his Republican opponents will come anywhere close on their own to matching his fundraising. What's going to happen, though, unfortunately, is that outside sources are going to pour money in against Sherrod to try to take that Senate seat away. And. Send another MAGA Republican to the Congress to represent Ohio. So it's not the Ohio Republicans don't have the resources themselves. But from what I hear, Mitch McConnell is planning on throwing like 80 million dollars at defeating Sherrod. So that outside money is going to be huge.
1: Okay, well, that I'm afraid we've run out of time. I wanted to talk to you about JD Vance. I wanted to talk to you about, you know, Jim Jordan and the, all that crazy stuff that's going on in Washington. But that'll just be our next conversation. Um, thank you. I really appreciate this and the, you know, the context of the of what this fight's really about, David. I'm very appreciative.
5: Yes, thank you for having me on, Edwin, shining a spotlight on this. All it's really important. and very much appreciated.
1: All righty. Okay, everybody, we're taking a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to turn to the second of the three states, I promised, Wisconsin. Stay tuned.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: All right, Dan Schaefer is back. He is, of course, the veteran Milwaukee journalist who publishes the weekly independent column called the Recombobulation Area. It's taken me like four times together to be able to say that. <laughs> we, we talk from time <laughs> to time about uh, that state and the state of our larger democracy. Dan, welcome back.
3: Thanks so much for having me on, Edwin. Always good to speak with you.
1: I, I, um, I, I'm i optimistic about Wisconsin, but I, I never want to underestimate the shenanigans that can go on there. This week, in what looked like a huge victory for democracy, not Democrats, for democracy, the legislature passed new legislative maps pursuant to the Supreme Court's uh, ruling that look a lot like the one Governor Evers sent them. But the vote was mostly Republicans voting for the map and Democrats voting against it. I know you wrote about this, but I don't really understand what's going on. What's going on?
4: Yeah. Well, it is, a, frankly,
3: quite a discombobulating moment uh, for the state of Wisconsin to have Republican the Republican-controlled legislature pass maps essentially proposed by the Democratic governor. Uh, it's, uh, you know, this is the, the world that we're in now where, where up is down and left is right. But good thing we have the the recombobulation area that we can help, you know, piece things together for you.
4: Yep, um,
3: yep. There's a right now, but so basically, just to wind it back a little bit. Uh, so, the Wisconsin Supreme Court on December 22nd issued a ruling saying that Wisconsin state legislative maps are unconstitutional. Uh, and they struck down those maps. Pause for a moment. Were, pause for a moment
1: for cheering and saying yay. And saying <laughs> that's, yeah. right, that's right. Thank you to the voters of Wisconsin for changing the Supreme Court to get it done. Yay.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to go back to all the way, you know, the very very beginning yep. of this process. But just yep. <laughs> yeah, the the voters flipped the court last uh last April uh and with that ruling on redistricting ruled that the the state legislative maps are indeed unconstitutional, as so many people have been saying. For so long, yeah. so as the part of the remedial maps process that they that they ordered that they issued in that ruling, um, they you know gave the legislature the option to to pass maps that would be signed by the governor, but they also issued started this process where. You know, essentially, the court would oversee uh, what new maps would be installed for Wisconsin. And so they ordered uh, a number of the parties involved to submit their own maps for consideration by the court. So there were ultimately six maps that were accepted uh, as part of that process, Uh, one from uh, the Republican legislature, another from a Republican-aligned legal firm called the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, and another uh, from and then four from kind of either Democrats or democratically aligned groups. And so uh, one, including from that from the law firm that uh, it, that brought this case uh, initially. Uh, and so of those six, there was a two expert consultants that were hired to oversee this process, and they issued a report on those six maps. And they said that the Republican map was a clear partisan gerrymander. Uh, they said the one from the Republican-aligned legal firm was a stealth gerrymander and that the court should not consider either of those options uh, for adoption. While this was happening, uh, the state, legislator, le- state legislature tried to push through maps of their own. And so they took basically what was the submitted map from the Democratic governor, Governor Tony Evers, and made a few alterations to it to protect some Republican incumbents and passed that through the legislature. Because they did they took that action to protect those incumbents, the governor vetoed that map, vetoed that bill, saying that I will only sign something that is my map, that is the map that I submitted as part of this process. Well, Republicans went back and they and they put in a new bill that was the exact map. It took a few weeks for them to get there. They got they submitted a bill that was that exact map. And that's what passed this week in the Republican controlled state legislature. Uh, that I think they had one vote in uh, the state, one Democratic vote in the state Senate, one Repub- one Democratic vote in the state assembly. The rest of it passed uh, with largely Republican votes. And so now the governor has a big decision. Does he want to sign the maps that he submitted and kind of put it into this process? Or would he veto the maps and let the Wisconsin Supreme Court order process continue to play out? Uh, the governor has said uh, in interviews that if the legislature passed his maps, he would sign them. But there are a number of people raising alarms about potential legal challenges that could arise from going through this process and not continuing on the process set forth by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And frankly, I'm a little bit confused about what exactly that should be.
1: Wow, that's so interesting. And is any part of this, you know, um, if it's not a question of what the maps are, because they took Governor Evers, the Democrats maps, is there a question of timing? You know sometimes you pass you say okay we'll do this but we won't do it for two years or we won't do it until i don't tell until after the recall uh uh effort uh that i understand is underway um for speaker voss is is somehow goes away i mean could it be a timing question as opposed to a maps question
3: so that, that's part of what's been happening in conversation this past week. So when this bill was passed, it, they you know, nobody really saw the exact language of the bill until it hit the floor. This is kind of typical for the way Wisconsin yeah. Republicans run things in the legislature. But it is you know is what it is. So nobody really saw what the substitute amendment was going to be for this bill, uh, and there was language in it that said that any special or recall elections that may occur before the 2024 general election would be under past maps. Or the language was just kind of fuzzy mm. on what mm-hmm. exactly that might mean. So Democrats were just like, "This is a red flag." This has something to do with the fact that, you know, the Republican Assembly Speaker, Robin Voss, is is potentially facing a recall. There's also an open uh, state Senate seat right now after one of the Democratic state senators was appointed to a judicial position in Milwaukee. Uh, So, you know, there would potentially be a special election to be called. There could potentially be a recall election. They're saying, well, why would that happen under old maps? Uh, And so like over the course, I think that's part of the reason that Democrats in the legislature voted against it to make sure that if there was some confusing or fuzzy or problematic legal language added to that bill at the last minute, that the governor had the option to veto because because of the way the legislature is, the Republicans are so close to a two-thirds supermajority, because that's mm-hmm. how gerrymandered uh, the state is, they had to give the governor that option to veto if they found problematic language in the bill. There's been reporting since uh, from politics, from the Wisconsin State Journal, and from other places that that language added was from the Nonpartisan Legislative Reference Bureau and does not appear to be problematic. There are still some others that say he should veto the maps because uh, they would invite a potential legal challenge to the Seventh uh, Seventh Circuit Court. Uh, you know, I've, <laughs> I'm trying to get my best understanding of what that might be. But Democratic Congressman Mark Pocan, who represents uh, the Madison area, uh, he has been kind of one of the main voices, uh, you know, kind of sounding the alarm on that. So that's so that's part of the decision uh, that is into the, the governor's calculations at the moment. <laughs>
1: I just let me understand that they're thinking there might be a federal challenge to the maps.
3: Yeah, and, and this is where it gets a little bit confusing to me, because uh, we we know that the federal courts will not hear partisan gerrymandering challenges, that those are supposed to come.
1: Courtesy to state of John court. Roberts. Yep. Yep.
3: Yep. And, and we know that, uh, the the maps are compliant with the Voting Rights Act. Uh, because they kept many of the majority-minority districts in Milwaukee basically unchanged so that they would Mm -hmm. um, survive potential appeals. Uh, So we know the main two federal things (laughs) that they would bring challenges for uh, would uh, would not necessarily hold muster. But, you know, the, there's an article in Democracy Docket, uh, which is the publication run by Mark Elias' firm, I believe. Yep. Um, and they have, you know, they have kind of raised alarms that there is a potential challenge that may not even overturn the maps or install old maps, but stay the decision to the point where they could kind of run out the clock uh, and have different maps installed for the 2024 election, whether that makes sense. That is the 2022 maps that were just struck down. That's the part that I don't totally understand. Well,
1: uh, I mean, the thing about what I'm realizing, I did not go to law
3: school.
1: Uh, No, it's I think it's just there's the the obfuscation around this, um, you know, the potential for nonsense is something that people can't resist, which is why, you know, journalists like you, you, you have full time employment trying to explain to the world what's going on in Wisconsin. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm all for taking the win when you have it. And it feels like this is a win. Um, Governor Evers maps and that it, this historic uh, uh, challenge to democracy that has been the Wisconsin uh, gerrymander uh, you know, should come to an end, and I, I, I find it really. I mean, you can sue about anything. Uh, we've seen yeah. that in America. So, I, 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 if he's on solid ground, I, I would take the win. But what do I know?
3: I, I think that is, I think the most likely outcome is that the governor signs the maps, uh, you know, and and I do think, you know, there there's a lot of, you know, it's kind of I've been calling it like legal Calvin ball where you just kind of make up the rules as you go along. And any argument could potentially uh, be heard based on how partisan certain courts are. But at the same time, I think you're right. I think this does potentially represent a huge win for the state of Wisconsin, where we have had maps that are close to two thirds. Republican majority. And while the Evers maps of the four maps that were submitted and are being considered by the Wisconsin Supreme Court, the Evers map is the most favorable to Republicans, but not by much. You know, the consultants who uh, examined these map submissions called the four, you know, kind of left leaning maps. They called them, quote, indistinguishable indistinguishable, nearly indistinguishable from one another. So they're pretty similar. You know, I think they they all have a slight Republican edge, which I think reflects the political geography of Wisconsin. But that's more of like a 52 to 49 Republican edge and not the 65 to 34 that we've had in the state of Wisconsin uh, right yeah. now. Um, and the goal is so, not uh, so for I Democrats. I think Evers map can be viewed as a huge, 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 huge win, Uh, For Fair Maps in Wisconsin. I think we've seen a lot of the kind of nonpartisan Fair Maps pro democracy advocacy groups across the state of Wisconsin have put out statements in recent days encouraging the governor to sign the maps and saying, yes, we've had a Wisconsin democracy campaign. I'm sorry?
1: Is law forward amongst them? What do they think? They've been slid- law forward mitigating.
3: has not put out any public statements on this. There they have, you know, they were the the group that led the challenge and they have had right. uh, one of the one of the maps that was submitted was from law forward. So, mm. um, you know, theirs is, is one that is that is being considered. Um, uh, you know, they I don't think they've weighed in uh, on what has happened this week since the legislature has passed the maps. Uh, I think one of their attorneys on Twitter, you know, was casting doubt on this potential Seventh Circuit challenge. It's uh, saying it didn't quite make sense. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's all very, very confusing and frankly, a little bit discombobulating right now.
1: Well, the goal, and let's just remind the listeners, we, we have seen maps weaponized. Um, but, 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 gerrymandering has been bipartisan in American history. But after the 2010 slaughter, um, Republicans gerrymandered at a level we've never seen before. Right. And that's partly because they had the technology to do it for the first time. Um, Very advanced map making and data analytics allowed them to lock in these gerrymanders and none worse than Wisconsin. And, And it's tempting for Democrats to say, now it's our turn. We're going to shove it down their throats with the most partisan democratic maps we can draw. But that is a loser's war. Those of us who love this country have to argue for fair maps. So that ultimately, the decision's up to the voters, not the parties. And and if Democrats don't get everything they want in Wisconsin, it's fair. Oh my gosh, what a difference that will make!
3: Yeah, and I, I think I think that is that is I think that's partly why you're seeing so many groups like the League of Women Vo- Women's Voters and the Wisconsin Democracy mm-hmm. Campaign and the Wisconsin Fair Maps Coalition. Say that you know, look the the and common cause. Say that the the legislature, you know, within the Wisconsin state constitution, that the legislature draws the maps or the, the governor would have to sign or veto yep. them, right? And they're saying that if the legislature legislature passed a map that is considered to be fair, then the governor should sign it through those those traditional constitutional channels. And I yep. think that is probably what ends up happening here. I think there there you know, I think some people are just very distrustful. But particularly Democrats in the legislature are especially distrustful of Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. They think he's got something up his sleeve sleeve. here. You know, there's always a catch (laughs) when it comes to Robin Voss. Uh, And so I think that is that is part of the skepticism from Pocan, uh, from Congressman Pocan, from so many Democrats in the legislature. They're just so distrusting uh, of Robin Voss that they think he's trying to pull one over. Well, I think the possibility is that he actually is just recognizing that this is the best of a bunch of bad options for him. And so there are maps that would potentially open up uh, the possibility to to have a Democratic trifecta at the end of this election, uh, and I think this is the most direct path to preventing against that because the Evers map, you know, in comparison to some of the others submitted, is just slightly better Uh, And doesn't mess with the timing of the state Senate calendar, which is kind of an every other year where, you know, we're seeing that in Mm -hmm. the U.S. Senate right Mm -hmm. now where the Republicans have a very favorable map. Similar situation uh, for the Republicans in in Wisconsin right now for the for what's going to be on the ballot in 2024 as well. So there would be if Evers map was implemented, there would be a possibility that the assembly could flip flip to the Democrats it would be extremely, extremely unlikely for the Senate to flip to the Democrats. So I think that yeah. is part of the reason that the Republicans are protecting against this, too, is because they don't want to open up the possibility of a trifecta.
1: Well, we're not them. We're not going to behave like the Republicans have behaved. So, I, I, you know what? Uh, fairness is the grounds on which we have to fight. Hey, there is a piece of good news related to Robin Voss. And you wrote about this, too. The recent polling that came out. You know, it shows the state is as as everybody thinks it's as evenly split red, blue as it could possibly be. And yet ordinary folks seem to view Speaker Voss. He's as popular in this poll as headlights.
3: He is a remarkably unpopular uh, politician statewide. He has only his his favorability rating was only 17 percent. Uh, in the recent poll, uh, you know that that is somewhat colored by the fact that uh, there are a significant number of Wisconsinites that don't that you know don't follow this stuff the way that we do. They're just living their lives normally yep. Yep. <laughs> um, and haven't heard enough to have an opinion of Robin Voss. That that accounts for about forty percent of the state, um, but there's only seventeen percent have a favorable opinion of him. About thirty nine percent have an unfavorable opinion of him, a net minus twenty-two, which is the worst number he has had on record in the Marquette University Law School poll. Also at the same time the polling for the Wisconsin for the Republican controlled uh, Wisconsin state legislature, also its worst mark on record in the Marquette University Law School, Bowl, which goes back years and years. Uh, and so I think it, that, it, you know, all of this happening with the maps is happening at a very interesting moment uh, for Wisconsin as the Republican legislature ha- is more unpopular than ever.
1: Yeah, it tells me that it's unpopular even with Republicans. And that that um, I I think is um, very good news for America. I mean, look, Wisconsin made tremendous progress in its fight to restore democracy after like two huge power grabs, right? One was the gerrymander in 2010, and the other, I think, was 2019. You can correct me if I'm wrong. When the legislature stripped in, then incoming Governor Evers of powers that every previous governor enjoyed, right? This is this is, and you know it's. It, I've been thinking about the hard work Democrats and their allies have done in Wisconsin on, you know, a wide array of issues. Um, But maybe it is the progress that we've made isn't. And, you know, the reason why Republicans have soured on their own legislature isn't that they've changed their political leanings at all. Um, But that they, you know, Democrats, Republicans, most people, they still want to live together in one country. We don't want to split. You know, we want to live peaceably. And we don't like it when things are just patently unfair, which is what the Republicans have, you know, have done. What do you think?
3: I think that's I think that's certainly certainly a big part of it. And I think that people have seen. The way that Robin Voss, in particular, in this brand of in this group of Wisconsin Republicans in the legislature have acted in response to a Democratic governor, just the obstruction. You know, there's there's still dozens of gubernatorial appointments that have just never been voted on uh, in the Wisconsin state legislature. There's just shenanigans at every turn with Robin Voss and the state legislature. And I think people are tired of it. And I think people want to come together and address some of the big issues. And and just, you know, I think there are so many issues. If you look at the polling, you know, in that same Marquette University Law School poll, there are so many issues that the majority of Wisconsinites agree on, and the Republicans are blocking or obstructing or letting die in, in, you know, committee hearings or whatever it might be. And I think this just kind of power consolidation at all approach uh, that they have taken, I think, is part of the reason that we've seen Democrats win so many statewide elections in recent years. You know, 15 of the last 18 statewide elections in Wisconsin have been won by Democrats or democratically aligned candidates. Uh, And so I think there's a reason for that. I think you're seeing independents, you know, vote for Democrats, vote for reelect Tony Evers and and flip the state Supreme Court and all of these different things, because, you know, especially at the state level, they're just finding so many problems with the way Republicans do things. You know, the, the example I always point to is the the gavel in, gavel out approach that Robin Voss and the state legislature have taken time and time and time again on issue after issue. You know, the governor in the state of Wisconsin will say, hey, we need action on, on gun violence prevention. We need action on child care. We need action on education. We need action on abortion rights. And he will call these special sessions and the, the legislature won't even engage with it at all. And they will gavel in and gavel out and do nothing. And I think that is just the type of approach that Wisconsinites have just had it with. And I think yeah, people want to gavel, get gavel out, to a more normal form of government. And I think that that is what, you know, Tony Evers in particular in Wisconsin, Uh, has represented in recent years.
1: Yeah, I I think that's I mean, Democrats would make a mistake to think that Wisconsinites have turned to have become Democrats. They just even the Republicans, there's some residual sense of fair play that these guys, this MAGA crowd has just run past that pisses people off.
3: Yeah, I think that's right, and I think uh, I think that is that is why we're seeing those approval ratings be what they are. And if this going if this is going to be, you know, on it, even if let's say the the Evers map is signed and adopted, you know, that's a map that projects on the 2022 numbers to be like, you know, kind of a, a 53 to 46 type of map in the state of Wisconsin. Yep. That would completely change the way that state legislative campaigns work because you would have to see so many uh, so many campaigns kind of come to the middle, find the consensus, find issues that the majority of Wisconsinites can agree on. Like we like we haven't seen in the state for the past, you know, twelve plus years. Expanding yeah, Medicaid my God, the way marijuana, marijuana, having yeah. abortion rights, not having, yeah. you know, crazy challenges. Uh, to the way we vote every single election, and so I think that is that is going to be a big part of those elections this year where all ninety nine members of the state assembly and sixteen of the thirty three members of the state senate will be on the ballot
1: I, I think it's fabulously good news okay i can't leave you without talking about i mean we the Democrats and democratically aligned candidates as you said won fifteen of the eighteen. Last statewide elections, but let's talk about one where Democrats lost because Wisconsin has has given to the United States the worst senator in the entire Senate, and that is a very low bar to crawl under, but, right? But you managed when you gave us Ron Johnson, who um, this week voted against aid to Ukraine and went around saying, you know, Putin's going to win. Putin's right. We just have to, like, make a deal with Putin, you know, and and by the way, we don't have $95 billion to spend, which I I guess, you know, we have plenty to give back to his friends in tax cuts. But um, when it comes to standing up to autocrats like Putin, he's like hiding under a rock and and giving their talking points that cannot be popular at home.
3: Yeah, it just seems like he's comfortable with just letting Putin roll over. Uh, yeah. and, and and just rolling over for Putin and just letting him do whatever he wants, which is just. Uh, just would be such disastrous policy uh, for for Ukraine and for the world, I think. And, and, uh, you know, I always joke that, uh, you know, this is this is who he is. This is our senior senator. He's in his third term now. Like, this is not, you know, an accident. I think for whatever reason, Johnson found a way in Wisconsin to kind of bridge the gap between the kind of Tea Party Republican crowd of the early 2010s and the MAGA crowd of the 2020s. For whatever reason, he's able to thread that needle. Um, But still, I think you're right. I think he he ranks among the very worst uh, U.S. senators. And I think we see examples of it all the time. You know, he's always in the news uh, nationally. You know, he's making the rounds on conservative media, saying these crazy things that will go viral all the time um but but at the same time we don't ever really hear from him in Wisconsin he doesn't actually do much you know for the state of Wisconsin when different projects are announced or you know you know a, a bridge is getting repaired or you know the big project for you know an innovation in Milwaukee yeah. or whatever it might be it's always Tammy Baldwin it's always the democratic senator Tammy Baldwin who is who is you know there bringing these projects back i always like to joke that we have one functioning us senator and one that's just uh, we pay to be on conservative media all the time Uh, because Tammy Baldwin, you know, there's
1: so many different examples of her doing big things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I he also was like a ringleader in this group that pushed and pushed and pushed for a tough border bill and then got the tough border bill. And then he ran screaming for the exit and tanked the border bill. Because you know what? For guys who view the job of government as this is a job, My job is to get on right wing talk radio and say crazy things as opposed to do anything that well, to do that job. You have to suddenly change your mind about whether you want to fix the border because you like the chaos.
4: Yeah,
3: that's exactly he has even gone so far in a number of occasions on a number of different bills where he goes on conservative media and says that he is in favor of obstructing these bills. He's in favor of not getting things done. You know, even I think back to so much of what happened um, during the pandemic, he voted against relief on every single bill. Like even the ones that were, were, uh, you know, Trump, uh, that Trump backed in every way. Like he he just doesn't want, he's not in the Senate to get things done. He's just in the Senate to say crazy things.
1: Yeah. I've never met the man. I've never interviewed the man. I, I uh, harbor the suspicion that he is a first-rate moron, but I could be wrong. He could be savvy in some way. I don't understand. But uh he is your gift to the country. And um <laughs> and we, we, Apple, we have a chance that, to double down on Tammy have- Baldwin
3: soon. Yeah, well, and it's a good thing we have. We have Tammy Baldwin, uh, who is yep. actually doing big things for Wisconsin all the time. She's always has very detailed, nuanced policy ideas, and it's just the most stark contrast between two senators probably that exists in any yeah, state. Yeah, because she's country.
1: one of the best. She's one of the best. She really is.
3: She really is. I'm I'm hers, and she wins in rural districts across Wisconsin uh, in ways that other Democrats don't, because I think she really gets into the weeds on policy, and she really... Uh, is in touch with what the actual problems are, you know, happening in the state. You know, one of the bills that she just proposed is super relevant to us here in Milwaukee, uh, because it is limiting the ability. it would limit the ability for kind of big real estate investment firms to buy up property and and, and mess with the housing prices and the housing market yeah. in the city of Milwaukee and that's caused huge yeah, problems help in Chicago recent years. Too. But that's not the type of policy that's going to, you know, get a big headline. It's not like the border crisis or whatever it might be. This is a wonky issue, and she's proposing a, a you know, a smart in the weeds solution for it. And that's, it's, you know, and she's going to be on the ballot this fall, too. So it's going to be really important that Wisconsin reelects her.
1: And in addition to the policy difference, unlike that blowhard, she is just she connects with people. She really cares about them and um, listens, which is a remarkable gift.
3: Yeah. in in you know, she has had the biggest uh, victory of any statewide politician in Wisconsin in that, you know, 15 of 18 run uh, that Wisconsin Democrats have had post Trump. She won. By 11 points in a state where you know elections are often decided by less than one percent, uh, she won by 11 percent in 2018. I think she's going to be a big favorite, you know, again this year uh, as she faces reelection against who is most likely going to be a guy named Eric Huvdie, um, who is still not yet announced. Wisconsin is just in a, in a weird place uh, where <laughs> the candidates running for seven, for months all over the country, but have not yet announced. Uh, in wisconsin but i think she is uh she's in pretty good shape to to get reelected but again it's wisconsin wisconsin's a 50 50 state it's always going to be a potential toss-up
1: and that's got to be the last word dan thank you for your time as always really helpful to understand that state
3: thanks so much for having me on always good to talk you're looking at the big picture with edwin eisentraft on
0: wcpt 820
1: Okay, to round out uh, this conversation about states, I am so happy that Anderson Clayton is back. She's the chair of the North Carolina Democrats. I think this is our third chance to catch up here on this show. She is, or she was when she was elected, the youngest Democratic state chair ever. Age aside, she's certainly one of the most energetic, creative, optimistic realists out there. She's been working with and learning from folks you all know, folks like Lavora Barnes, Ben Wickler and Ken Martin. But lately, she's been teaching them things, too. Anderson, welcome back.
9: (laughs) Thank you for having me, Edwin. I really appreciate it. And hello, Chicago.
1: (laughs) Hey, my listeners may not know that North Carolina has a Democratic governor and a GOP supermajority. Like Wisconsin. Um, And like they did in Wisconsin, the legislature is trying to strip the governor of his powers. You know, talk about that and whether folks in the state just see that as, you know, sort of basic. Yeah, no.
9: I think that North Carolina, and to quote um, a good pal of mine, uh, Simon Rosenberg, for anyone that might be familiar with him, he's a bit of a D.C. politico who likes to talk a lot about state legislative races this year, and he has really been, you know, he tells everyone that he talks to, he says, the two states that make me worry the most for the future of democracy in general is Wisconsin and North Carolina because of our state legislatures and how far both of them have taken gerrymandering both racially and partisan in, in the states, and obviously Wisconsin had a very big success um, with Judge Janet getting elected to their Supreme Court and making it so that Wisconsin's actually able to, you know, draw a fair match for the first time in, in a long period of time, almost a decade for them, too. And North Carolina, unfortunately, we did have a party switcher last year in 2023, uh, a Democrat that had won in a, um, a, a, a district that Joe Biden had won by over 60%, right? Um, had switched parties to be a Republican, Trisha Cotham. And when that happened, it took Democrats in our state House and our state Senate into the super minority um, in the state legislature. And that gave Republicans the ability to enact not only one of the strictest abortion bans that we've seen in North Carolina, but equally, you know, give the Supreme Court in our state the right to say, we've got every bit of power to take back and to make sure that. Uh, partisan gerrymandering is legal again in the state. And so the North Carolina Democratic Party has a long fight ahead of us, and we've really mapped out the roadmap until 2028 where taking back our Supreme Court is possible. So in 2024, North Carolina Democrats have got one Supreme Court seat up, and then 2026, we also have a Supreme Court seat up. Both of those two seats are currently held by Democrats, and so we need to hold and then hold again. And in 2028, we've got three seats up that are Republicans on our Supreme court and we're here to take back our courts so that we can then declare partisan gerrymandering illegal again in the state and make it so that democrats have the trajectory to take back north carolina in a real way at our state legislative level up oh, until that then though, so Edwin, what we're gonna be working on right is our council of state so we want to keep a democratic governor in the south this yep. year which is really what we're focused on to in 2024
1: I I, I I i'm so excited by that and i uh, simon is a regular guest on the show he's one of Uh, of a couple of my guests who are huge fans of yours. The other David Pepper Pepper can't say enough about how you found your champion candidates to run in every tough district. So, so (laughs) you've got a fan club on this show, but, but, but I don't agree with Simon on this. I think um, what's happening in Wisconsin and what you are doing in North Carolina are examples of, of, uh, political organization that has found in the people of their state a, a sort of disgust with the cheating and the and the corruption that goes with radical gerrymandering, where oh, people can't hold their elected officials accountable for anything. And I, I just think what you're doing, you were dealt a terrible hand, as they were in Wisconsin, but you're fighting back and, and winning in ways that I think I find inspiring, not depressing.
9: (laughs) Well, I hope so. I find a lot of my hope and optimism comes from younger people in the party. And I I don't think that that's to say that, like, you know, I'm not one of those people that says that, you know, boomers just need to go off and do something with their lives. I'm like, no, I, I want everyone to be part of this party. But really where I find a lot of the hope and the the newness from, right, is the young people that haven't maybe been through the same fights that some of our older generations have and have been, and I'm, you know, they've been struck down before too. But young people come at this with a, a newness and an opportunity to say, well, I've not been knocked down before. I don't know what that feels like yet. And so let me go up there and let me try once and let me see what it's like before you go up there and tell me that I can't. And I feel like that's the energy that North Carolina is bringing. You know, we had – 350 young Democrats in Durham this last weekend. We did the Young Democrats of North Carolina convention. It was the largest convention we had had of young people since 2008 uh, when Barack Obama right took North Carolina. And I think that it's telling right now of the energy that's on the ground here of people are really set up. And, and it's exciting to me because I think that we're tapping into, tapping into it in a way that we haven't before.
1: And my experience is that when I'm an old person. So so it's a long set of experience. When young people are out there, they're energetic, they're organized, and they're smart about it. The older folks love it and say, you know, thank you for picking up the slack. How can we help? So I I just think, it's, you know, it's really exciting to see.
9: No, and I mean honestly, like some of our best people that we have running in those champion races. And for anybody that's on that's listening on here, it's like, why do they keep saying champion races? Because um when, with North Carolina being gerrymandered the way that it is, you know, we had a lot of districts in 2022. The North Carolina Democratic Party left 44 seats of our state house and state senate seats uncontested. We had no Democrat running in them. That's three million North Carolinians that didn't have a Democrat to vote for at the state legislative level. And for us, we just kind of looked at that and said, man, we can't do that again Um, because we know that we need to fight for for votes everywhere. We want to run people everywhere and we want to make people believe in that. And so we're contesting 168 out of 170 state legislative seats in North Carolina this year. And a lot of the people that stepped up to run for them are folks like Justin Matthews out in um, Cleveland County. He's a student that goes to Gardner Webb University right now, and he's in House District 110. And he called me in between classes during filing, and he goes, Anderson, I really don't think the person that we've got for this district is going to go up there and do it. He said, should I? And I was like, Justin, I said, you know, I don't believe in sacrificing young people. That's also not something that I think is, is you know, voting well for us as a party. I don't believe we should just ask young people to run if they do have a political future, especially in some of these races. But he was so excited about it because he's like, no, I want to do this. I want to put up this fight. I want to make sure that Republicans don't go uncontested. And how we built up, you know, champion races and people that are not running in Um, The red districts, but they're running in champion races that they have to champion the Democratic cause in is by telling them that and telling and and everyone got that, honestly, when we were out there in these rural counties being like, we need somebody to run just to put a Democrat on the ballot. Y'all like, you know what it's like to go in that ballot box and not have somebody on the ballot to vote for. And, and it resonated with folks. And so I think that the energy that's there, too, is coming from the fact that people get that they may not win an election this year, but it's about upping the margins. It's about making sure that we can win statewide because you can't gerrymander a statewide election and showing people that Democrats can still win in North Carolina to give us the opportunity and the build back to the next, you know, two, four election cycles that we really need to take the state.
1: See, again, the idea that you're, Campaigning everywhere that that in large chunks of the state where people only heard the disinformation machine from the right, you know, from Republican candidates and from whatever uh, way they get their news, um, you, you, like you're you're bringing reality to their doorsteps, you know, saying like this is what you're listening to, this is what you're hearing, here's what's really going on, and and. You know, reality has a funny habit of of winning over time. So I I just I think it's so exciting and so helpful to the whole country.
9: And we're bringing reality, but we're also bringing real people, which is what I think is the most important thing that we just have not had as a party, as a bench that's full of just, you know, everyday folks that think that there's a problem in their community and they want to go help solve it, but they don't know how to. And I think about, like, our reddest Senate district that we've got this year, Darren Staley. It's in Wilkes County in red rural Appalachia in western North Carolina. And Darren yep. Staley is running for that that state Senate seat up there. And one of the reasons that he's running is he said, you know, Anderson, I've been on disability. I've received a check like that every month. And he said it was the government that got me involved in going to college, got me a job, helped me get set up. And he said, and that's why I believe in these systems, because the social safety net, it's there for a reason. And people don't need to pick on folks that might need that in their life right now. And I feel like that's what we need out there at this moment in time. Like, it's not handouts. It's a hand up in life. And it's something that you need to be able to get yourself going. And, and when we have more people out in every part of our state, every part of our country, right, telling that message of, like, this is my life story. And you can listen to it or not if you want to. But I think that it's going to impact you. And I know it impacts other people in your life.
1: Um, le- le- turning from from – Well, politics is related to actual governing. Um, When it's corrupt, when it's so gerrymandered that no one can be held accountable, I I began earlier in this show, we began the show talking about Ukraine and the corruption there and how the people in Ukraine can't stand it. And they're trying to fix the legacy of Soviet corruption. And that's part of what caused the war. And that was the first part of the show. Then we talked to Ohio, I think, was next. And they talked about the corruption scandals they're having because of their gerrymandering, right? And mm-hmm. we had the same conversation in in, in uh, Wisconsin. And now I understand, you know, shock of shocks, in, when you have this radically gerrymandered state legislature, you have, like other states, a phony school voucher progr- pro, uh, mm-hmm. program. Talk about that. Just tell people so they understand, like, just, when they do it the way they do it, they can't help themselves. If they have power, they abuse it.
9: Yeah, I mean, looking at our state legislature right now and then going back to the party switcher that I named earlier, actually, Trisha Cotham is the one that put through this bill to begin with of trying to take away. We've got a voucher system in North Carolina for private schools and charter schools right now that would allow over a billion dollars of public school education funding to be taken out of our public school system um, over the next year and a half. Uh, to go towards oh. private schools. And so when we're oh. looking at, you know, the crumbling infrastructure of our schools already, I'm in Person County, I'm from a rural part of North Carolina, and we're already having to look at consolidating schools in our county because we're not getting enough funding from the state right now to keep them open. And it's because the state is not putting enough money into education. And it's because they've been doing that over a decade. In North Carolina, for those of you that know, and I know Chicago might know this well, you know, we do have UNC Chapel Hill in our backyard. We've got NC We've got um, UNCG, UNC Charlotte, all of these premier institutions, because UNC, the North Carolina system, the UNC system, is the first public education system to ever exist in the entire country. And it's the best one in the country, in my opinion, still, even though it is run by Republicans at this moment in time. But that was that was made under Democrats. We, you know, we had a Democratic yep. governor, Jim Hunt. Democratic governors like Terry Sanford, right, that started that in North Carolina. And it's what made us known historically as the progressive beacon of the South. And it's important because right now, over the last decade, since Republicans got in charge of my state back in 2010, they've slowly but surely stripped, right, money from public education every year. And it's been this silent and steady kind of, like, um, takeaway. And it's been strategic on their part to then start blaming, well, the schools are not serving our students the best, right? We're not able, like, you're not getting the best education in public schools anymore. And it's the idea that they have been pushing into our school system for so long and the mentality of our people here in North Carolina for so long, too. And they're doing it at the national level as well, right? And so what, like, what the real problem is, is we're just not funding education. And when we fund public education, we know we have better societies as a whole. We have better civic understanding, right? We have better voters in this, in, in our world. And I think it is so important to realize that Republicans right now attack on public education from our State legislative level from the national level, it's to make sure that people are not smart enough to know the fact that Republicans are trying to keep them sick and poor all the time.
1: Well, and they're putting their hand in their po- in, in the public's pocket in order to to enrich themselves. I mean, you guys in your school voucher program, I think their money is going to a school that doesn't even exist. Like, where's the But I mean,
9: like they're fine. They're trying to privatize anything that they can. Right. You know, we passed Medicaid expansion in North Carolina this last year for the first time in a decade. And we could have done it years before that. Right. Over 600,000 North Carolinians got access to health care for the first time this year. And Republicans still didn't want to do it. And I look at people all the time, and I'm like, that's what they're focused on instead of everyday people, and that's what we need to be going out and telling folks in North Carolina. I say all the time, I'm like, Democrats don't have a messaging problem. We've got a showing up and telling what's going on problem. And at this point, I feel like that is our main job is just get out there and talk to people face-to-face and bring them, to your point, right, the reality of what's happening in Raleigh and in our state capitol. <sighs> I, you know, I,
1: I'd love to just have you just go on about this for longer because I love it. But I have to ask you a question that I know is not your favorite topic, but you've got to explain to the country here because there's news, really recent news, about your counterpart on the GOP side, Mr. Michael <laughs> Right? He's been tapped by, you know, dear leader, Mr. Trump, to lead the Republican National Committee along with Trump's daughter-in-law. So he's being invited into the nepotism here in the family of the GOP. Besides being, you know, an eager part of the cult, what can you tell the world who's going to now have to learn it about Mr. Watley?
9: You know, what I find funny about Michael Watley is that he used to really be a Bush era Republican, and fun fact about Michael Watley, when he ran for reelection as the Republican chair here in North Carolina, he was actually contested. And a lot of people, if you go online, there's a lawsuit that's like you can read online or whatnot. But there was a lawsuit that actually came up against Michael Watley after the Republican convention uh, last summer because people that were in his convention accused him of voter fraud. They accused him of rigging <laughs> his own election to become chair of the art of the um the Republican or the Republican Party here in North Carolina. And it, it's very interesting to me because Michael Watley's biggest issue is election integrity. And the fact is, is that people said he rigged his own election because he instituted as the chair, because he is the current chair overseeing that election as chair, too. Right. He instituted an app on your phone that you had to go on there and vote for, like the, the chair election itself. And they said that that was the only election that you had to vote on. And the judge threw out the case not on there wasn't enough evidence, but they, he threw it out on a technicality on filing the suit. And I do believe that that judge is probably a Republican, too. And so Michael Watley, to me, is someone that, you know, at one point in time was probably a more a regular, you know, Elizabeth Dole, that's who he used to work for, era Republican in some ways. And slowly but surely realize that the only way to gain power in the Republican Party right now is to bend at the knee to Donald Trump. And I think that should scare everybody from realizing that people who, da- who who know, right, that he is not someone that is respected in politics. or that really represents, I even think, what Republicans used to be in some ways, which was a party of conservation, small government. We're looking at what Ron DeSantis is doing right now in Florida. And I'm like, I don't know how you call that small government. I don't know how you call it. Like, that is big government happening down there. And so the Republican Party, in my opinion, is having an identity crisis. And Michael Watley is the key example of what that. That looks like somebody that's having to fundamentally change their morals and their their values to be accepted into a party. Now that he now wants to lead to get a leg up in it,
1: yeah. And apparently, uh, if his main issue is how do you rig an election, he's perfect for Donald Trump. So I can see why Trump wants him. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, but let me ask you a question: Is that a distraction that's going to help? You know, is that a distraction on the GOP side um, that's that you can use? Are they going to be like confused about getting somebody else while he's gone off to be part of the cult?
9: Um, I think, you know, I hate to give Republicans credit for anything. What I will say, the North Carolina GOP has been one of the most well-organized parties that I have seen in just terms of like, you got to get, you got mm-hmm. to tip your hat and give respect where it's due in some ways. And I really yep. do hope that it messes up the fact that they have an organizing program on the ground But the NCDP is going to have one just as strong and just as operable this year because we did not in the last election cycle. And so that's really where I see a key piece of I don't know if that was Watley or if that was somebody else within the RN or within the NCGOP. But there's a a movement there that I would like to to see if that's going to have an impact on it anyway.
1: Okay, so talk talk about the next year, what you want to I mean, what what like step by step, what do you want to do?
9: Yeah, so the North Carolina Democratic Party right now has already got organizers on the ground. And one of the biggest things for us is just making sure that we are talking to every voter because Joe Biden lost our state. For fun fact, I know that you probably know that one, but for the folks that are listening that may not like North Carolina was the only state in the country that he came within a percentage point of winning in 2020, which meant he lost North Carolina by 74,000 votes. And we have the opportunity right now to know where those votes lie from demographics that have moved into our state, new new voters, but also young voters. Barack Obama's biggest population of folks that are biggest demographic that carried him over the line in 2008 were voters under the age of 35. And so for us this year, that is going to be a huge demographic we're going after. The state party has three organizers already on the ground. We have an organizing director and a training director hired, which is basically saying that we value, you know, boots on the ground. And that's something that the state party has not done in years previous. We're mm-hmm. trying to start a year-round organizing program early. And to the point where we're trying to follow the Michigan model and the um, the Wickler model in some ways, too, for, for how they've been able to put a year-round program on the ground. And then – I'm going to be out there. I'm doing a rural press tour this summer, so I'm going out to all of the rural counties and parts of North Carolina to talk about the infrastructure bill and amazing things that have happened from um, Internet access in North Carolina to manufacturing jobs that have come back in the western part of our state. You know, Hickory, North Carolina, which used to be known for manufacturing furniture, and it still is, right, across mm-hmm. the country, is now known for manufacturing fiber, too, uh, because North Carolina it makes 40% of the nation's fiber at this moment in time. And fiber is important, right, because that's what your your Internet is is, is made of now um, and is running mm-hmm. on, is future-proof Internet.
1: Okay, so all, all those organizers are expensive, Um Would you take a moment and tell everybody how they can contribute to building this organization that's going to flip a state for uh, Joe and for the Democrats and ultimately flip the whole state to get rid of the corrupt gerrymandering that's caused so much trouble?
9: I can. Uh, anyone who's interested in helping us out down here in the South, uh, I really do believe that North Carolina is the state that's worth fighting for this year, and I believe the South is worth fighting for this year. So you can go to ncdp.org and donate and sign up to volunteer with us. Uh, we do love out-of-state volunteers, too, so I'll take them any that I can get them. Um, but the North Carolina Dems are trying to expand our organizing program. We want to put more boots on the ground and fun fact, when, what we were able to do with those um, organizers last year being on the ground early, we had historic municipal wins coming out of our state. And for anyone out there that's interested in seeing what the future of the Democratic Party looks like, it looks like rebuilding our party from the ground up. We need to make sure in states like North Carolina, right? I know Chicago is a bit different now up there, but you mm-hmm. know, in states like North Carolina, we got to win back school board seats and county commission seats. And up down ballot to focus on up the ballot, too. So we're really working on those hard here.
1: I, I think this year um, there's going to be coattails that run up, not down. I think you get people excited about a local race and they show up and they'll vote for Joe Biden. But, you know, they might not show up for the presidential race if they weren't coming out to fix their school board. I just think coattails are backwards this year, and what you're doing is going to contribute to, um, uh, you know, the the top of the ticket um, uh, more than most people think.
9: I hope so. I believe in that. But I also just believe, too, that local elections matter so much. And we've seen it in North Carolina over the last decade of how our state legislature has been single-handedly making it so that the federal laws, right, that are coming down, even when Democrats are at the national level, what's happening is that the policies are not making it to the ground because we've got people that are trying to prohibit them from doing so. And to me, that's looking at a Republican state legislature in North Carolina that's not helping Democratic money at the federal level really make it into our communities like it needs to. And so there's a piece of the puzzle for everybody in this party. But I really think that the future of it is looking, to your point, reverse coattails up.
1: Yeah, boy, I would not want to be, you know, on the other side of a fight with you.
9: <laughs> <laughs> well, I <laughs> some of my Republicans feel that way this year, Edwin. I don't know.
1: <laughs> yep. Uh, well, th- thank you for your time, as always. And, and, you know, give them hell down there. I just love All what right. you're doing.
9: Thank you so much for having us back on. We really do appreciate it down here.
1: You bet. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want to hear from you. Uh, you know the number. We'll talk soon.
0: Edwin Eisendrath is taking your calls now at 773-763-9278. The big picture is on now. WCPT 820.
1: Jim, get us started.
6: Hi, Edwin. How are you? I, I took uh, from a colloquialism in the United States. My thoughts and prayers are with Pomaldi this weekend. Any person who lay his life down for his friends sleeps in sweet repose. And this is the kind of person that uh, makes the world go round. And I'm, you know, it's irresistible to me. Uh, the longer he adds, Edwin, the more irresistible it is to me. You know, mm. but, uh,
4: you're the person who
6: laid his life down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably right but he laid his life down for the people in russia and i'll always remember that how brave he was and what a brave soul he was and uh what do we got how many days we got to this election i guess Johnny, the other day she's got a it town it saying science 166 days or, i don't know what it is but it can't come fast enough for me but anyway when you have a great weekend thank you thank you buddy.
1: Oh, thank you for calling and thank you for a shout-out for Alexei Navalny. um, The world has in it people of conscience, courageous people, people who put um, who live and die for something bigger than them. Um, And you know what? We're in a time when uh, that is an option, more of an option for people than it should be. Paul?
8: Justice in America means that a black woman will have to stand in court to account for her love interests before a white man who is a proven rapist, slanderer and fraud, and who has already been ordered to pay almost a half a billion dollars to account for those civil matters before he shall stand in court to account for 91 criminal counts. We first must hear from the black woman and she must justify her romantic interests.
1: Well, now in fairness, in a way, in fairness, um, uh, what was a disgrace? What happened to Fonnie Willis? I know that's what you're talking about, but in fairness, Donald Trump did have to go to court for, uh, sexual assault. He was found liable for it. The statute of limitations ran out that happened before she went to court and he was, um, he got a pretty big fine twice for his behavior in that. Um, so we're going to hold him to account. I mean, I I, I take your point that uh, there is definitely disparate treatment and it's unfair. But I don't want anybody to think we're going to let Mr. Trump off the
4: hook.
8: Well, the, we won't. And so I'm going I'm to take the Edwin Eisendraft tack right now and say, no, we the people will not. I'm confident of that. Yep. But we the people live uh <laughs> what do they say families? you know there's an elephant in the room when the media and the courts uh hold these this comparison as moral equivalents. They're not, and I don't care what kind of moral compass you have, and there are different kinds. you know there are different kinds of moral compasses. some people take uh re- religious, some people there are other ways they don't have to be religious. They, yep. can reason. Uh, they can yep. be reasons. They can be reasons, but or they can be combinations. But there's no there isn't any way that I can take Donald Trump uh, and then to say that. Well, there were no victims in, in his uh, fraud case. No, when you violate regulations, we the people are the victims we the victims,
1: well, because- and, but so was the bank. I mean, he—you know what—he sold six hundred thousand. He gave hundred or six hundred million. He gave a hundred million back. They still yeah. lost a lot of money, right? In, in, it, his his performance after Judge Engeron issued the fine, where he attacked everybody and was responsible for nothing. Uh, yeah, is just yeah. an example of, for these guys, they don't know the difference. Leave Trump aside. The, the MAGA world doesn't know the difference between, um, holding someone to account for their crimes and using government to attack someone, um, that they don't like.
8: They just don't know well, you the know difference. What? And, yeah, you know what? I think, you know what? I think Trump is selling to the MAGA, to the MAGA base. Trump is a political looter. He's selling chaos because there are people who believe that they actually have an upper hand, that something they'll have an advantage when there's chaos, like a riot. They can start grabbing what they think is theirs. Now, that's kind of a twisted view, but there is, and I know uh, from talking to people, like people from eastern Oregon, they romanticize lawlessness. They think it's a good thing. And uh, because they have, I don't know exactly what their twisted mind thinks, but they, they raise their young people to think that way, too. And I know that. I've, been, I've talked with young people, very nice 19-year-old kid that I talked to a year or so ago who was a, uh, a college, he was a tenant of one of my friends. He rented a room, and he was saying, he was from Eastern Oregon, he said that where he comes from, the great American heroes are people like Bonnie and Clyde and John Dillinger and the great American bank robbers and B.B. Cooper. And I said, whoa, 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 this is during dinner. I said, stop, Jake. What, why? Because uh, they beat the system. And I said, no, they didn't. They ripped you off. They ripped off people like you. But they well, did You can go a few but- blocks
1: from where I am right now, and you can see where John Dillinger was shot dead. So he got—he he yeah. ended up like it's a great life to be a miserable
8: yeah, well, that's yeah. what I'm saying is that Trump is selling chaos, and there's a yeah. people who have a there are people at his base that have some kind of a, a, a what I don't disillusioned mindset that they think that yeah if if he can do it and he can be this contumacious smart mouth teenager in the principal's office that that somehow helps helps them, and he, of course he insulted the judge yesterday, and this is what people yeah, they they groove on this stuff like yeah because they they're trying to live vicariously and talk back to power, speak back to the power that they think has ruined their lives, when it's really been their own lack of initiative. You know, financially or economically, the, the 500 counties that Hillary Clinton won in 2016 uh, were uh, accounted for 64% of the economic productivity in the country. The 2,600 counties that Trump won accounted for 36%. But in 2020, those same 500 counties that Hillary won, Joe Biden won, now accounted for 68% of economic productivity, whereas the Trump 2,600 counties accounted for now only 32%. What do you take from that? What do you take from that? The people who were actually better off after Trump's term voted for Biden.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that it also says that um, it's an entirely false promise. What Republicans have done to rural America is nothing short yes. of criminal. You know. And, and, totally. and we and need to make all, that case everywhere.
8: Yes. And most hey, of all, got, it's I, hospitals hospitals closing because you know, people hospital, don't understand schools. how rural hospitals stay open. They stay open yep. by government subsidies. All
1: right. I I, yeah. I gotta run a big list today, but yeah. thank you as always, Paul. All you right, bet. George, you're next.
4: Right. Thank you, Edwin. I just want to make a brief comment on something that was talked about much earlier in the show when you were talking about uh, the alienation of so many voters who haven't uh, participated in the great increases in wealth over the past, you know, 40-odd years. Uh, Tom Hartman periodically reminds us that since 1981, $51 trillion have been transferred from I guess it's about the bottom 80% of the population to the top 10%. And their real incomes have gone up around 355 to 400%, whereas everybody else has gone up around 33% over that time, which means overall no increase in an actual falling behind the rise in the cost of living and inflation. And I'd, I'd simply like to say that Republicans, of course, it, it, that's been their baby for the longest time. And with Reagan's dazzling BS, they put it through, but there were too many Democrats that went along with it. Two of the worst, in my view, were Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy, who got on the bandwagon even before Reagan was elected. They swallowed pictures of the Kool-Aid of deregulation from Margaret Thatcher and deregulated uh, the airlines and interstate trucking. Now, if you if you can find a commercial yellow pages from back in seventy eight and eighty, when the airlines and trucking were deregulated, you'd be astonished at how many companies just disappeared, don't exist anymore. Yep, Other yep, people to work
1: consolidation.
4: Yep. The, so so um, you, well, Let me you, just. I just. My mobile's done making my point. Nope. Yep, the, the reality is is that we now have vastly fewer players in both industries, and there are vastly more non-union outfits. All these uh, alienated workers, if the Democratic Party had made it job one to keep fighting for strong unions and easier access for workers to form unions all these years, Uh, They wouldn't have lost people to Trump. But the reality is, is that since the Taft-Hartley Act was passed a lifetime ago, the Democrats have failed to repeal it. And until that is done, there's going to be a big uh, obstacle to get over every time. I mean, Joe Biden, blue-collar Biden is now the first authentic pro-union president we've had, I would say, since uh, Hubert Humphrey and Lyndon Johnson were in office. That's too long. The Democratic Party has gone off on too many different tangents of lifestyles and splinter groups, and the vast working class has felt left behind. If they had good, solid union jobs and strong unions, there'd be no Republican government. Okay. Right,
1: a solid point, points, and your history is sound. Um, the country made a shift. Democrats did too, um, but Democrats have tacked back, and Joe is the um, has done more to try and undo uh, the, the legacy of the 1980s than anybody since then, um, and Democrats have supported have supported him in doing it up against a huge wall. Uh, your point is that it has been too little, too late, and not enough. But here we are, and uh, it, one side's doing it, and the other's fighting it. So today, it's pretty clear what we got to do. Thank you, as always. Um, uh, and reminding everybody of this incredible consolidation that happened, put people out of work and um, w- led to the uh, consolidation of wealth. Ron,
7: you're next. Hello. Hello, Edwin. Hi. Hi, Edwin. We got to get. Let me get something straight here first. Dillinger was never killed at the biograph. J. Robert Nash. His book, you know, the, the uh, reporter from the Daily uh, Daily News, wasn't it? But anyway, his book, uh, Dillinger, Dead or Alive, he documents in that book that the man on the slab was it uh, didn't match the Navy records from Dillinger? The the gun that was supposedly Dillinger's gun was a drop gun that was let, later uh, turned up uh, hey. uh, stolen. But the thing okay, is wait, this is all new. This is show. new to
1: me, and I I I, I, I you, you may be right, you may be wrong, maybe a conspiracy theory. I promise you, I will do some looking at that because that's interesting to me.
7: But let's not spend too much time on it. <laughs> okay. Now, as far as the knowledge goes, did, did anybody anybody who thought that once he went back to Russia, that he was going to come out alive, is a fool. He went back there to commit suicide, plain and simple. And his death is not going to help his cause one bit. If he was on CNN right now with his family, he would be 10 times more effective than being buried in the ground, plain and simple. My thoughts, but <laughs> it was a waste of manpower, in my opinion. Now, don't give wrong i've changed my position on russia i say kill as many russian soldiers as we can because they support hamas plain and simple but the thing of it is what ukrainians are never going to win as many weapons as we give them unless they we get our our own manpower and there's no way that we can send our soldiers in there and and expect to win it'd be a losing proposition plain and simple my okay.
1: Uh, that, that, that's a fair thought. Um, I will get some, uh, experts in the battlefield on, um, in the coming weeks. And we'll have that conversation about what it actually takes to win. um, cause it's an interesting question, right? It's a very interesting question. Anyway, Ron, thank you. Brian, what do you think?
6: Oh, good afternoon. Uh, Edwin. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, reportedly, uh, uh, Tom Skilling, uh, whom uh, you've had on your show twice before, uh, is going to be retiring for good this time. And uh, I was wondering if it would be possible, given this bizarre climate change, uh, that uh, you could have him on your show sometime uh, before he uh, you know, departs for wherever he lives after he retires, if you could have him on your show again sometime.
1: I appreciate that. I will. Um, I'll think about that. I love Tom. He's a great. He's a. He's a friend and a terrific uh, communicator about the realities of climate change. I, I'm deeply um, impressed by him and always happy to talk to him. So thank you for that.
6: And uh, can I make one more brief point? Yep. Uh, the previous uh, person who phoned in. I just wanted to say that. Uh, uh, for me, uh, I believe uh, Jimmy Carter was the uh, last truly ethical president we ever had and uh, in, in the largest sense of the word and uh, as for Senator Kennedy, he was a New Deal Democrat and uh, uh, largely a pacifist he uh, uh, voted uh, uh, he expressed himself as no as going to the legal wars of aggression against Iraq, according to Nuremberg, uh, the first one. And then the second one, I believe that was early 2003, he voted a definite no. And uh, he was tireless in uh, uh, supporting uh, the uh, poor and struggling. So I just wanted to say that about Senator Edward M. Kennedy. Uh, and uh, that's... Uh, uh, pretty much sums up uh, uh, what I had to say, and I, uh, you know, thank you for taking my call, and hopefully of comes- Pardon?
1: Of course, of course, and I'll talk to Tom. All right, well, Brian, you. uh, da- Dave, you're next.
10: Yeah, hey, yeah, I'm not speaking earlier about the, the funny wills on. Uh, it's kind of like uh, I believe, like they say, history has imitated itself. Remember how the. The OJ trial turned into the Mark Furman trial.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
10: you know? and that yeah, was okay. yeah. a murderer got off, and of course these guys that pretty much got him off—they're all burning in hell now. That's okay by me, but um, but you know, make the
1: connection so I understand better what you mean. To make the connection well, back you, you to
10: what's happening. You did see that here. Bonnie Willis was called up to the stand and they were going over about, you know, their, her sexual, you know, with this uh, guy. I,
1: that. I saw it. I was, I, 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 I didn't, okay. I couldn't and, watch
10: and, it. I, I was. And like yeah. she even pointed out, she said, they're on trial, not me. Yes. Do you catch that one? When she said yeah. that?
1: Yeah. yeah.
10: Okay. And you a connection so you, then of the OJ to, uh. the uh
1: yeah oj was jury nullification which is an american thing for sure um uh i what i think in this case is i don't see you know it's a very painful uh uh experience i just don't think they made the case uh to kick her off and i hope that the trump trial proceeds but they'll they will be unpleasant about her every inch of the way um uh, and that Right. Is well, a, others have said
10: that if if they look like you know that they, she should have stepped down, if nothing else, because otherwise she'll lose that that whole crew that's working with her, on it will be gone.
1: I don't know if that's true. I mean, we'll we'll see. I, they, I think she's been uh, treated what, very
10: badly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what you know. So, so-called you know wiser heads on. On the CNN and MSNBC who got some law degrees and not, you know, yep. outhouse degrees. And that <laughs> uh, last one with that, uh, talking about that uh, Dillinger one, the, the one with the late, when you get this person to get it, yeah. uh, you know, the correct or whatever. So-called, yeah. the so-called lady in red who had yep. supposedly fingered, she supposedly was promised she would get citizenship or whatever. And the government turned on her and deported her back to, I believe it was Romania. Afterwards.
1: Well, I want to tell you and everybody listening that, you know, John Dillinger uh, is not my area of
10: expertise
1: and what happened to him. So I'm no, not going to no, do too I much. Mean,
10: <laughs> Some of the stuff are read yeah. right up. In it. anyway, let uh, me yeah. get off, here, I imagine you got a couple more yet. So I, just I do. Thank you. Thank
1: you very much. All right. Um,
10: All right, Edward.
1: Yep. Uh, Paul, who's next? Eduardo. Hello there.
5: Yeah, Edwin, I'm going to be brief. Uh, I thought this was interesting. And um, Louisiana, Jeff Landry, he's issued an emergency indicating
6: that there's a shortage of uh, sheriffs for the whole state. Um,
4: I know Oakland was going to be sending, or I don't know if they have been sending out the National Guard. So I don't know if National Guard is going to be the anchor, if uh, police officers
6: in the future are going to be down. What do you think about that?
1: Um I don't know the specifics of uh, the Louisiana case that you're talking about. I do think um, policing is a very different job than the one that the National Guard has and the one National Guard's people are trained for. And I know that policing is an enormously difficult job. Um, And it is um, not to say National Guard work isn't difficult, but it's a different kind of difficult Where police forces run into trouble um, is when they get confused about what constitutional policing is, and then they run, then they end up getting communities that don't trust them, and they can't do their job. So I I I strongly believe in very good training of police to do the job that everybody needs them to do, as opposed to saying anybody with a gun anybody who is a force can step in. I've heard people say, you know, we should rotate, we should recruit police candidates from military schools, for example. I think it's a terrible right. idea, right? Because the people on our streets that we're trying to protect are not the enemy that we see in a in a war. And so so again, I don't know the specifics of what you're talking about, but in general, no, for gosh sakes, you cannot just say anybody who has a gun can step in and do the job of policing. It's chaos. And it is um, um, policing is about keeping all of us safe. It's not about getting rid of our enemy. And that, you know, if we ever think that we're going to be in terrible, terrible uh, straits as a country.
3: Yeah,
5: I mean, you have retirements, and maybe you can get people that are – this is part of the trade thing that I'm uh, in favor of. Maybe people uh, do a trade thing with uh, policing.
1: I think we have to – look, we have to to recruit, properly train, and and continuously train police so that they – are, you know, they understand what their obligations are and they understand what tools they have. And then most importantly, they understand how to lower the temperature, you know, lower right. the temperature because what's right? They, they are asked to step into, into moments of violence, moments of threat, moments of enormous stress. And they have a second to decide what to do. And if they, if they are, are, if they're really well trained, they use that time to deescalate the tension so that people aren't, right. so that they're not shooting and they're not shot at, right? But if you yeah. go in the other
4: way, yeah, they're going to have a good threshold. Go,
1: yeah. yeah. So, so this is, it's hard. It's really hard. I am in, I, I am, you know, I am deeply respectful of the enormously difficult work that police do. Um, uh, but I understand why communities don't trust them, why over time they've built up an array of, you know, anger about police. And, and it isn't precisely because we have not always done it well and we need to. And that, so I'm, I'm a hundred percent down with let's, let's not just take anybody, you know, oh, I have a shortage of police. Let me have a gun. I mean, that, let me just take the guys who've trained to shoot and make them police because shooting isn't the thing that makes a good cop, right? It's something they have to to do, but that's not what the job is. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, uh, I don't have a, I don't have a brain surgeon. So let me take the phlebotomist who draws the blood, right? Because they both work in hospitals. So let's just take the the, the person who takes your blood and make them your brain surgeon. It's a different skill. Right. Right. So, so no, uh, no, that's a, te- it's an absolutely terrifying idea.
6: It's All right, Edward, thank you very much. Have a yeah. good weekend.
1: You bet. All right, everybody. Um, uh, look, this was an interesting show. I, 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 I don't know if anybody listens for three hours straight. Um, but if you did today, We began with a long conversation um, uh, with a woman who's working to help rebuild Ukraine. Right. Um, And what she said was, look, you have to understand what this is about. This post-Soviet corrupt Ukraine wants to be. Um, a Western democracy. They want to fight the corruption. They want a place where individuals have a say in the way their future is. Right? And, and that turns out to be the most important fight, whether it's in Ukraine, or whether it's in Ohio, or Wisconsin, or North Carolina. Because the same themes are there. When you have a radically gerrymandered state, the voters. They don't get to their votes don't matter. So in Ohio, the corrupt state reaches into your pocket, takes your tax money and gives it to a phony school voucher program. Or they reach into your pocket and take the money you're giving to turn on your lights and use some of it to pay a a corrupt energy company to give them campaign donations This is the this fight for a world where people have a say in how their government works, where people with power aren't allowed to stick their hands in your pocket and take your money and make you work, uh, take your wages, make you work for less than you should, take, um, just take and take and take. If you're tired of that, and if you're tired of a world where where that's made possible. By you know looking the other way, then stop looking the other way and join the fight. We have um, this fight here in the United States, and it's tied to the fight overseas, right? It's not a coincidence that the same people who are trying to steal our elections in the United States, who are filling our, our news media with lies, are the ones who are saying, you know, maybe Putin's right. Maybe we should, you know, they just thrive in a corrupt world where people with power are free to abuse power. And the rest of us are supposed to like it. I'm sorry, I don't like it. I never will put up with it. Not a second. Nope. And I hope you don't either. Right? So let us let us stand up for our democracy at home and stand up for people everywhere. And if we do, I promise you, it won't take that long. We will wipe the liars off the stage. I'm not saying they'll disappear, but they won't have the power that they have. And we will usher in such a great future for the whole planet, for the whole planet. So um, I am an optimist, but I'm an optimist for a reason. These are all connected. You can see it in a show like we had today. And I really appreciate your being on this journey with me. Um, we'll have something else for you next, next week. So in the meantime, go, you know, sign up and make a donation in North Carolina. It's going to matter. Talk to you soon.